Yeah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, you might have heard tell a lot of people talk about mental health. We talk about it on this show consistently since we first started doing it because it's important to talk about. It. And this is one of the people we've had on before to talk about it. It's just been a little while. She was busy moving and such, but we got her now, Dr. Catherine Gordon. We're going to call her Katie because I say Catherine in my accent. Bad things tend to happen and we're all friends now. She is an excellent uh, clinical psychologist. She is the author of the Suicide Thoughts Workbook. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Just got published in Arabic of all things. You're worldwide, my friend. Great to have you back. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I, I always like talking to you and I and I enjoy opportunities to talk about mental health. So thank you. How cool is that? It, it's one thing to get public. I remember the first time I got something published and just, you know, even online or in a publication. And I remember the first time I got something in a newspaper and I could physically hold it. And I remember the first time I got a cover at a major magazine. That's a big deal. When you write a book, that's even bigger deal. When you get a book that they start printing in other languages, that's pretty big time. That's got to feel good. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it just, and I didn't know about it. I actually learned about it through Twitter because someone had, had tagged me on a tweet. So thank you, Twitter. And it, it just means a lot. Like I, I just, all of the work and effort that went into translating into another language and, and being able to provide these tools for suicide prevention and coping with suicidal thoughts to a broader audience just means so much to me. And it's got to be special when, you know, you're talking about, and you know, the Arabic languages, obviously those are countries that, you know, probably don't have as much liberalization as we do when it comes to things like mental health. That's got to really feel important to your work, doesn't it? When you're, you know, in media, we'd call it opening a new market, really. But when you, when you're going somewhere that a lot of your colleagues don't get to go, that's got to feel good. Yeah. It, it means a lot. I want as many people as possible to have access to mental health tools and, and to deal with the many struggles that people face. And so that's that's huge to me to be able to open up to people who who need to read a book in Arabic. I mean, that's that's a big deal. So, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. 
Yeah, I think it's great. Okay, let's get back to the English-speaking world for a minute because I barely do English right, so let's just stick to that for right now. I tell people all the time I'm bilingual. I speak some English, and I'm fluent in Appalachian. Um, here's the thing. We've talked to you the last couple times because we had you on during the COVID times. We're starting to get data now. We're start The kids that went through it are getting a little bit older. We just had uh, one of the rising college kids on last week. We're learning more and more about what actually happened mental health-wise during COVID, during the lockdowns, during the school shutdowns. I know there's a lot of stuff there, but just give me two or three of the top-line items of the research we're seeing, both practically what you're seeing in practice, and more importantly, there's a lot of peer review going on right now about what we did right, what we did wrong, what we're learning. Just give us a couple of the headlines that we should be taking away right now. Well, the big, I, I think loneliness was an enormous public health crisis before the pandemic, and it's worsened for a lot of people during the pandemic. And what I'm seeing in therapy practice is people saying that at least at first, when everyone was kind of following the same measures, they could still connect with people. But now that people have different levels of risk tolerance in terms of masks, meeting outside, going inside, that it becomes an issue sometimes of conflict in between family members and friends in terms of what kind of social connections they're going to have. So that continues to be an issue along with kids who were out of school and returned to school in person and have anxiety, have maybe struggled with some depression, especially if their family has undergone economic hardships during this time. It's just a lot so many stressors. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we'd like to think that it wasn't going to last as long as it has as well. So I think that the length of time that this extra stressors have been there have just led to a lot of mental health issues. Let's let's go through a buzzword here real quick, because this is something people talk about on their social media, and I'm sure they talk about it in person. And I think it's something we need to define real, real clearly here, even though it's not really definable, if that's a great sentence for a clinician. If <laughs> they can figure that one out. But this is just the fact of the matter is, when does something go from just being, all right, I'm having a bad day, I'm having a bad mood, I'm struggling today, this isn't going my way to, this is a mental health problem, I need help here. That's really the core debate to almost everything when dealing with mental health is when does it go from just, this is a day-to-day -day thing I can handle to, I need some help here. And people don't know how to talk about that line. It's a fuzzy gray line. It's a moving line. It's a moving goalpost. But that's really the core of the issue here, isn't it? I, yes, I think that's really tough because as mental health problems, at times when they're more prevalent and times when people are more openly talking about them, I think overall that's really important. That's good to reduce stigma and negative ideas about that people should feel shame for struggling with mental health. On the other hand, I think that it can make it a little harder to say, okay, I need to get help because I think then people say, but what I'm going through is so many other people are going through it too. And that's just how it is under these conditions. So one way that in psychology that we've looked at this traditionally is to look at, is a person impaired in some way? So are they having trouble working, trouble connecting with their family, trouble connecting with their partner, trouble with friends? Is there something that is their distress so bad that their functioning 
is impaired and that they're not able to have this quality of life where they're present in their relationships, where they're able to do things that are important to them. And so that's a big function. Or if the distress is so bad that the person just wants to feel better. And so I think that now what I've seen is this movement towards everyone should just go to therapy. And there's debate around that issue too. But I think that leaning on that side allows you to kind of go in, talk to someone and see if there are some goals and things you can set to benefit from therapy, regardless of where you are on that kind of spectrum of, of mental health. Yeah. See, mental health is such a big thing. We could sit here and talk about it all day. And there's a lot of words, a lot of big buzzwords. Let, let's do something practical, though, with you. We're going to run through a couple of the headlines and narratives. These are big publications. This isn't fringe stuff. And just get your reaction to it, because that's what folks see every day. So maybe you can just react to it. So when they see it, because this stuff seems to be recurring, right? We see the same things over and over again. Here's a good one. This one's from NPR. Mental health in the back to school season. Now, I'm a parent. Uh, I just did registration with one of my children today. I was a little stressed doing it because I went in and they're like, oh, you got to do this all online. You didn't need to come in. Just little stuff like that. It's a good thing, though. Back to school, falls changing, routines changing, kids changing. This seems like a very valid headline to me. I agree. I think that it kind of normalizes uh, a buzzword that we like to use the common experience of the disruption that happens when you're going from summertime to school and all the things that go along with that that affect everybody in the family's routine. And so I like that because it kind of says, okay, let's talk about that. And this is a typical thing that most kids are going through. It's a positive thing in a lot of cases to go back to school, but it's stressful. And so here are some ways that you can talk about it with your family. So that I have a, an overall positive reaction to that headline. Yeah, I like that one. Okay, here's a little tougher one, but we're seeing this one a lot uh, from the New York Times. This one's about red flags for shooting, life crisis, not mental illness, experts say. We've seen this over and over again with mass shootings, but we see it with other criminality too. We're going to, you know, every time when we have police brutality videos, like, okay, you got you're doing violence to somebody that's violence, these sorts of things. Where does the line between mental illness and criminality collide? Because there's another one that's really hard to define but we've got to have some kind of a working definition to deal with these sorts of things of like, okay, when is somebody responsible or not responsible for their behavior? This is a really hard, complicated question. And I'm not just saying that to avoid answering it. I think that it's controversial with good reason, because I think there are, there are also, I should say there are differences clinically and legally, right? So legally often when you're looking is, is someone culpable of a crime, you're looking to see, are they aware of being able to tell the difference between what's right and wrong? Are they competent to stand trial? In other words, can they participate in their own defense? Do they understand the proceedings that are going on? And forensic psychologists really specialize in those types of issues. Whereas from most therapists who are working with people who are struggling with mental health problems, fortunately don't have to get into these tricky areas. So I think that it's important to keep the mental health kind of lens along with seeing how that might interact with violence. I think the big concern that a lot of therapists raise and which I agree with is the over excessive link that can sometimes happen between mental health problems and violence. Whereas most people who struggle with mental health problems are not violent. They're much more likely to be victims of violence and perpetrators. And so I think that that 
sometimes is lost when it's really focusing on what's the mental health history of this particular violent person and in those stories. Yeah, we're going to keep seeing that one over and over again. All right. Uh, this one's a little bit more nuanced and big picture, but I kind of like how they phrase this here. This is from Forbes. Uh, headline, all mental health roads lead to a common destination. Be your authentic self. Uh, your career field makes a lot of money trying to help people find their authentic self. But I can see where that's kind of a core thing to what we're trying to do with mental health. Everybody's just trying to be the best them. And when you get away from whatever you're supposed to be, that's when you start having mental health problems, right? I mean, that's really, really basic, but there's truth there. Absolutely. It doesn't feel good to have to get away from the things that we value. And so a lot of times therapy is focusing back on what we value, how we can be real. I think this comes up in therapy a lot with social media. If people feel like they're performing a particular identity or trying to get a particular effect on social media, that can feel inauthentic. And so sometimes people are trying to figure out how, how do I feel most grounded in myself? And I think therapy can be helpful for that because life has so many constraints. Most of us have to um, earn some money. We, we, have, we can't be completely say whatever we want unfiltered at work to maintain a job. And so there are, you know, as parents, you know, it requires effort of being a particular way. And so it's finding that authentic self within those roles that can be helpful to have someone in my profession help you to navigate, I think. Yeah, talking to Dr. Katie Gordy. Okay, one more of these, and then we're going to move on. But uh, this is from WREL. That's Raleigh's TV station. Uh, new mental health data shows, quote, unsustainable burden on NC hospitals. And what this is driving at is rising mental health care, emergency room visits, involuntary commitments, and longer wait times for psychiatric beds. This is a wider problem in the medical field where, you know, emergency room care is really jacking up the rest of the system. This is really becoming an acute issue when it comes to mental health, isn't it? Absolutely. This is part of the problem of helping people once they've already developed severe, significant mental health problems, rather than going back to trying to prevent them in the first place by making people have access to their basic needs, that they have access to health care, to shelter, to food, to all of those things would prevent downstream, not all mental health problems, but it would reduce them significantly by reducing those stressors. And, and that those types of interventions are likely to help rather than waiting until the end when people are at the point where they're in the emergency room. Yeah, Dr. Catherine Gordon, we're going to take a quick break. We come back on her tell. We're going to get into one of her specialties, uh, pop culture references and how mental health is portrayed in commercials, even comic books, movies, TV shows, one of her favorite subjects. More with Dr. Catherine Gordon on her tell right after this. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom. All in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking to our good friend, Dr. Catherine Gordon, talking a little mental health. We're going to talk about pop culture with you because this is how you you address this so brilliantly in a lot of different mediums, from podcasting to your writing to other things. But before we do that, um, I saw a lot of headlines when I was doing prep for talking to you. It does seem like entertainers, actors, stars, we're seeing more and more sports stars. We're seeing more and more... Um, stars in the social media and influencer realm, even executives and companies, there really does seem to be a positive movement moving towards people being open about, hey, I'm taking a mental health break. I'm saying no to this. I'm open about my mental health care. At least that aspect of this seems to be getting better. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's still really meaningful to people when they hear, whether it's a sports figure, actor, whoever it is, musician that they look up to saying that they're trying to find ways to prioritize their mental health. I think that can mean a lot to people. It it kind of, I think that especially if you're feeling isolated or struggling with mental health problems and feeling a lot of shame about it, when you see someone you look up to express those things, it can, it can help a lot. All right. So one of my favorite things to always talk about with you, pop culture what have you been seeing and watching lately that has either a positive or negative effect on mental health that you really hit and go, oh, I'll, I've got to talk about that because that brought up, we've talked about it before. You did a wonderful piece in Ordinary Times about BoJack Horseman. We'll link to that and the other things you wrote. You know, stuff people just don't think about and go, oh, that's a really positive thing. What's a couple of the things that have gotten your attention lately? Well, thank you. And I don't know if you noticed, but I have a BoJack poster right behind me. See, we call that a segue in the biz. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a professional like that. Exactly. Well, I, I was happy I watched this last night because I knew I was talking to you today. I watched the first episode of She-Hulk on Disney Plus, and it was a big deal in the psychology community because and the therapy community because the Hulk named a specific type of therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, that he uses to manage his anger and his distress. And so he's talking to She-Hulk about some of the principles in this therapy so that she can manage her emotions as to prevent turning into the Hulk. And um, it was a, it's a big deal because a lot of the time there it's non-specific, it's generic stuff. But here he named the therapy. He actually said that it was evidence-based and he talked about some of the components of the therapy to her. So it was it was kind of cool to see that in such a big show. Um, another big show that just came back, Game of Thrones is back with the House of the Dragon. It brought up a whole lot of the old, now art is subjective and what is and isn't gratuitous is really subjective, but I've got to ask because these are triggering things, gratuitous violence, um, depictions of sexual assault, things like this that are in art pieces like this. This debate will always come up of, is this bringing light to it or is this glorifying it? 
I know there's not a hard and fast answer for that, but is there some guardrails that people should go into something like a Game of Thrones or uh, movies with violence or movies with depictions of assault? Things that are triggering the folks that we know are triggering. Is there some guardrails they can maybe know, even though it's subjective of just like, okay, here's what I need to do mindset wise going into something like this? I think that broadly speaking, the question about how it's impacting our culture at large is, is an important question. I think that's harder to answer than how it's impacting individuals. I really encourage people to recognize how their own moods are affected by what they're watching, what they're reading, what they're doing, and explore that because it is, it's hard to miss out on big pop culture events like very popular TV shows and all of those types of things. And yet it's also important to feel like it's okay to draw limits on what you want to watch and what you want to do. Because if you notice that you're having nightmares or more flashbacks when you're watching those shows, which won't happen for a lot of people, but if it does happen for you, then I think it, it's good to really pay attention to that and modify your what you're viewing uh, accordingly to protect your mental health. Another big time show that pretty blatantly delved into mental health. Now, uh, Stranger Things season four came out. Uh, now we won't do spoilers in case people haven't watched it, but there is a character on this season who is, that's exactly what he's there for, basically talk about this stuff. Obviously there's trauma involved because of the really weird stuff that happens in the show. And again, I don't want to do spoilers here, but it, it's weird stuff. It's kind of a play off the, you know, the satanic panic and stuff like that from the eighties, which I'm old enough to actually remember the first time we didn't get mental health treatment for that stuff, but that's another story for another day. What about something like Stranger Things 4? Because it gets a little trickier when you have, and I know they're they're almost adults now still playing younger children, but when you have children as the main leads and you start dealing with things like that, does that change that equation or is that something that really needs to be presented on screen? Again, it's a touchy subject, but is that something because the stars of the show came out and said, no, we think it's good that they're showing kids in this light. What's your opinion on it, though? I think that it can be done poorly and be done well. And so if they have people involved in creating those scenes that are sensitive and making sure that appropriate developmental boundaries are drawn in terms of what they're doing, what they're depicting and what they're exposed to, then there can be some benefits because even though kids are not facing demogorgons, they do face other things. And so I think there could be something that's relatable, but I, I would take some caution in terms of not wanting to exploit the shock value of what happens to kids or even the kids themselves. Again, I know they're not really kids anymore, but developmentally, I, I would want to think about what's best for them and their well-being. So while that is taking place and that being a priority over entertainment. Something I wanted to ask you, because you've done different media, you've done podcasting, you've done writing, you do interviews like this, you've done radio with me. When people are talking about mental health, because you've done all these different platforms now, so you've done a little bit of all of it. You're actually tweeting about this kind of like where you're at in your journey yourself. What's one or two things you could give to just the normal person? They may not know, like you were talking about She-Hulk, and it's like, oh, it's a big deal. They use the right nomenclature. Well, people don't know the right nomenclature. People don't know stuff like that. They just want to help people. What's a couple of just real simple ways that they could change maybe how they do their social media or their interpersonal relationships when they're talking about this stuff that you would say tweak? Is it, you know, just the the overall viewpoint on it? Is it the sensitivity on it? Is it learning a few of the 
few of the terminologies just so you know what you're actually talking about instead of just following a buzzword. Give folks a couple practical things they can do to to lift up this discourse a little bit. Sure. I, I think one of the the big deal things about them using the dialectical behavior therapy term is because it shows that not all therapy is created equal. And I think that's important for people to know. There are a lot of influencers, for example, who kind of can get a lot of attention and following by talking about self-help and quick fixes. And that should send off alarm bells to use some critical thinking because change, as, as most of us know, have tried to make change in their life, is hard. It does take particular skills and tools. So anything that seems too good to be true or a quick fix and things like that, I think that it's important to look at that critically and also not, you know, have some compassion for others who are struggling with mental health problems and understand that there aren't quick fixes in most cases. And so even understanding and having some compassion for the idea that it's a lot of work for people to work through mental health problems, that can be a way to get to a more authentic understanding of each other, a more compassionate place. Yeah, Dr. Katie Gordon. All right, we mentioned it earlier. I want you to tell people about it. I've actually read this when it first came out because you were nice enough to send me an advanced copy of it. I've actually recommended this to people. It's the Suicide Prevention, uh, Suicide Thought Workbook. Tell people what this is, what it was designed to do. We're going to link to it so people can get it. They can share it. This is one of those things where you probably wouldn't mind if they actually bought it and left it laying around somewhere for someone to find because that's kind of what it's designed to be. Just tell people about the book real quick. Sure. The basic idea of the book is that suicidal thoughts are really common and that through therapy and science, there are tools that can help to deal with soothing pain, soothing loneliness, and keeping yourself safe. And I have tried to summarize those in really accessible worksheets and exercises, hopefully, in, in this workbook. And, and that's what the workbook is all about. All right, Dr. Katie Gordon, one last one before we let you go. This was an internet meme that went around, but I think it's actually pretty cool because I'm actually a transportation guy by trade. So when they go transportation and mental health together, I'm like, oh, I'm there. Uh, this was a sandwich board sign. I'm going to read it to you. We'll put it up on the show as well for the YouTube viewers. Quote, tweet, treat, <laughs> tweet, Freudian slip. <laughs> uh, treat yourself like I-95 and never stop working on yourself, no matter how inconvenient it is for everybody else. What do you think? <laughs> I, I think that's true. That's just, you know, I I also want to recognize that some people um, are too critical of themselves. And so it's definitely a balance that actually came up in She-Hulk. Assume people are doing their best and that they can do better. I think that's a good kind of way to look at things, to acknowledge where you've made those positive changes, but also acknowledge where you can improve. Yeah, Dr. Katie Gordon, we love having you on. Uh, we went a little lighter on topic today, but that's good because you need to be able to talk about this in a light way and then let people go as deep as they need to. And let folks know, like we mentioned, you've got some life changes going on. Let folks know what you got going on and where they can follow you until we get you back again on Hertel. And it's not going to be so long this time because that was crazy and you were busy moving and so forth. So let folks know what you got going on. Absolutely. Well, you're the first to really hear this announcement, but I've decided to start a new newsletter. I'm, I'm joining Substack. Um, as a as a writer, not just a reader, and it's it's going to be Mental Health Minute. I'm going to launch that in September 1st because September is Suicide Prevention Month, and the idea is to take therapeutic tools 
and summarize them briefly for busy people so that you can weekly in your email inbox get something useful hopefully that you can use that week fantastic and uh, when you get that up and running in september let us know we'll have you on and we'll definitely talk about it dr Catherine gordon you're one of the best we love discussing things with you you keep watching that pop culture stuff so i don't have to and we'll talk <laughs> again real soon my friend okay thank you thank you ma'am Our good friend, M. Carpenter, one of our favorites, one of the smartest people we know, great writer, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Make sure you go check out all her work. She usually does Wednesday Ritz, but she's been a little busy saving the world in her day job. So that's been a little spotty, but she did do one last week. Thank you very much for showing up to work. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, that's a joke. I'm kidding. Uh, let's talk about that law school experience for just a second. Law school has always been prohibitive. It's always been tough to get into. It's always been extremely expensive. Are we reaching kind of a critical point, though, where maybe it's gotten too inclusive, too hard to get into, and too expensive? Um, too expensive, yes, I think it is definitely too expensive. I, uh, education costs, or no, not the cost, but the cost to the students, not necessarily the cost of providing that education, goes up all the time, goes up every year. Um, and in law school, just by way of example, when I finished college, I had about $16,000 in loan debt from my four years of undergrad. Uh, my first year of law school, for which there are no Pell Grants, um, my first year's debt from law school was $16,000. And I know it's probably a lot more than that now. Obviously, in 20 years, that's gone up. Um, and I guess, you know, they expect that once you graduate from law school, you're, you know, you're going to be in a position to get a well, well-paying job and to pay those loans back with ease. Um, I'm one of those who did not go to big law, go to a firm directly out. In fact, I started out in a small town, small county prosecutor's office making about $30,000 a year. Um, so it's not the same experience for everyone. So uh, yeah, I think the cost is is a bit expensive. So depending on what you plan to do with your law degree, and if you want to be a public defender, which I've said on here before, in my opinion is the highest calling of a lawyer. If you want to make a, your career in public defense, you're you're never going to make those huge salaries and, and pay back these exorbitant loans. So um, I think that's a good argument then for some debt forgiveness or programs for people who take those types of jobs um, and aren't making the big, you know, six figure incomes. Um, as far as how much gatekeeping should go on for law school admissions, I think the best way to weed out people who shouldn't be there is your first year of classes. That first year that we're one L year is notoriously difficult and, and some people say is designed to weed out those who don't have what it takes. 
uh, because it's a different it's a different way of learning. It's a different type of education than people are used to. Um, takes some adjustment. You definitely have to study. There's not as much ability to kind of skate by with uh, your your intelligence without actually studying a lot. So a lot of people don't make it, don't come back at the end of your first year. Your second year, a lot of people who were there the, the year before are gone. Um, unfortunately, that means they may have been left with a year's worth of law school debt that they now may not have the money to pay back. So it, it's, um, it's a hard balance. See, this is the thing people talk about lawyers talking to him, Carpenter, our friend. This is the same problem every other career field is currently having where the promise is, well, you get your college degree and then you get a great paying job. Well, the promise is you go to law school and you get an even better paying job. But the reality is there's only so many of those better paying jobs and there's a lot more lawyers coming out of law school than there are those great paying jobs, right? So the there's a problem with the pipeline system of saying, hey, go to law school and get a great job. I'll just take all this student debt. Law school, it seems like the law school, if anything, it may be even more predatory with the lending than with just the regular college stuff that we're seeing, isn't it? I think so. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't think attention is paid to those who are not going to to come out of the um, out of law school with a, a a huge job. There's, you know, there's a lot of deferments and there's um, income based repayment options and, and a lot of uh, ways in which you know your loan payments can be adjusted, um, but they all have their downfalls. You know, the the lower your payment, the longer you're going to be paying, and the more interest you're going to be paying. Um, so there's a lot of to, to, of considerations there. Um, you know, a lot of lawyers, when they hear people talk about, you know, they're, they want to go to law school, you always hear, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And, and they'll try to talk you out of it and say, you know, do something else. I would never do that. Um, I love, I love being a lawyer. I love going to law school. I think it's a, it is a noble profession. I don't care what you say, Andrew. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you Always do it so I can lean on you and I don't have to do it. So yes, you, I'll agree with you. You make a lot of lawyer jokes at my expense is why I say that. Um, but I think it's an, it's a good profession. It's a noble profession. Everyone hates lawyers until they need one and, and, and they actually get help from one. So I think it's, um, I don't, I don't want to dissuade people from going to law school. I don't want to encourage people to take on um, $200,000 worth of debt for their, their legal education. I certainly did not, uh, and I know a lot of people want to go to the top tier law schools. So you know, help to help them get that high paying job, and and, and it might work out for them. But you can go to a, um, a school, a perfectly perfectly good law school like I did, WVU. It's not uh, Harvard, it's not Yale, but I'm doing just fine. And I know you know I have classmates who have who went on to firms and, and are doing very well. So I think that, you know, you don't have to go into six figure or double six figure debt um, to get a law degree. You can do it, you, you know, adjust your expectations, adjust your standards. You can do well and, and not incur that much debt. It's everybody thinks that you're going to, um, every lawyer has $250,000 worth of debt. That's not the case, certainly not the case for me and uh, probably not the norm. So I think that you hear the loudest, most egregious tales and egregious stories, but I think that it's still, it's doable. Um, do I wish that I had less debt? Yes, I wish I had uh, been able to pay uh, more of it 
at the time. A lot of law schools, WVU included, discourage or prohibit you to have a job while you're in law school, especially if you're a 1L in your first year, you are not allowed to work outside of uh, perhaps a work study job at the law school. So, you know, those are all things that, that go into it. And obviously, um, I didn't have the ability to pay for it out of pocket. So do I wish that I could do it all over again and skip law school? Absolutely not. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell Show. Okay, it's all over the news headlines. People have been talking about it. We're going to talk about it with our friend, Sean Timian. Did I get it right? I was practicing. Tima. Tima. No, Ah. Ah, See, I, I'm a hillbilly. We can't do those vowel sounds. Phonics was the worst thing that ever happened to West Virginia, <laughs> I swear. Sean Tima, uh, another great Young Voices contributor. We'd love to have them. Uh, he's a chief of staff for Young Americans for Liberty. He has been all over media, lots of appearances. Sir, thank you for the time. Deep from the heart of Texas, appreciate you joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So the rumor mill has been going and going and going and going and going. I'm kind of confused as to whether we're still in the trial balloon stages or the assaging stages or where we're at with this. But we apparently are going to get some kind of a student debt relief something from President Biden somewhere in here. Uh, be that a change of pace or a change of subject or whatever, it seems like something's going to be coming out. Uh, is that your read as well? Because it keeps going, the numbers change. Now we're looking at maybe a $10,000 thing. Where do you think we're at in the news cycle on this? Because this has been allowed for a couple of months now. Yeah, well, we know that the left likes to dangle student loan debt relief whenever their poll numbers are dwindling with young Americans. They've never acted on it, but times may be so desperate for Biden and the rest of the Democrats that they may actually bite on this one and upset some of their friends in the higher education cartel with Sally May and the banks and the CEOs of these loan collector companies. But it's important to remind people of two things when it comes to the student loan debt crisis. It's that uh, maybe even three things. We'll see how many I list off. But one, it's it's wrong to rob Peter to pay Paul, right? And simply put, we shouldn't be asking blue collar working Americans or Americans who did not go to college to pay off the debts of people who went to Ivy League schools or got gender studies degrees. It's just not fair. And two, canceling student debt does nothing to actually reduce the cost of higher education. In fact, it incentivizes you know, the higher education cartel to continue these student loan programs and to continue raising the cost of college beyond a reasonable, affordable amount. So in this debate, it's important we bring those two things up. It's not fair and it's not going to solve any problems now let's i because i talked to our progressive friends as well the problem that the biden administration is going to have on a practical level is this ten thousand dollar amount seems to be a a unique bidenism of this seems to be ticking everybody off because the people that want it doesn't think it's going to be enough the people that don't want it at all think it's too much 
this seems like it's almost like you're it's like they're searching for an answer that's not going to make anybody happy. That almost makes it even a worse policy, doesn't it? I agree. And I don't put it past Biden and his advisors to go up with the world's most milk toast option. That just seems like how they do business. But you're right. I mean, for people that are in $100,000 debt, $10,000 is, is just crumbs. Um, and it's still going to cost us a heck ton of money that we do not have as a country. I mean, we just printed $5 trillion over the last two years. And you see what that is doing to the price of gas and the price of food. I mean, there should be a robust debate uh, and a huge burden of proof to overcome if we are going to spend any more money or print any more money. But you're right. I don't think it's going to make anybody happy. Um, it's not fair <laughs> still, and it will do nothing to reduce the cost of higher education, which is the bigger problem in the first place. Sean Tima joining us. Okay, let me throw you some of the counter arguments and let's just work through them here. Uh, the first one is kind of the common sense one that sounds good on the service of well, anytime you do debt relief to people, that's money that would go back into the economy or would go back into other things. What do we say to that argument? Yeah, well, you have to remember where the money is coming from, right? Inevitably, this money is going to be either taxed from people, which that money could have went into the economy, right? Or it's going to be printed, which is pumping up the cost of every piece of the economy that you're looking to buy. So it's a wash at the end of the day if you're raising the price through inflation and printing or you're taxing people out of their money you know, just to have that money being put into the economy. It's a broken window fallacy. All right. The other uh, thing that comes up with this is the demographics of who get this. Uh, the argument is, well, student loan debt would help the poorest Americans, but by the numbers, uh, this is actually a lot of middle uh, class and up folks that also have student loan debt. Not that a hundred thousand dollars of debt, even for somebody that's pretty wealthy, that's a lot of money. That's crippling debt by anybody's standards. We have sympathy for those folks, but what do we say to that argument? Yeah, well, the data shows the majority of student loan debt is owned by people with master's degrees and doctoral degrees. So if you are that smart to get out there and get that level of a higher education. And you should be smart enough to know how to pay on that debt yourself instead of relying on people who made a fiscally responsible decision to not take on massive debt, to go to trade school, to uh, pay off their debt. Uh, you know, so this isn't the grand subsidy for the poor that the left likes to pretend it is. This is subsidizing the Ivy League elites and the uh, arguably or uh, accordingly to the, to the degree standard, the smartest people in society. Now, let's take the other end of that for a second. You, you're a smart guy. You've seen these numbers already. The fact of the matter is something like 60% of Americans don't do any college whatsoever of any kind. At least they don't have a, a degree or a certificate attaining level of it. On the political side of this, 60-40 issues, the 40 side's usually not the edge of that on the political issues you want to get on. I understand the arguments folks are making. I'm sympathetic to people that want debt relief. But if you're on the wrong end of a 60-40 split, that just doesn't sound like it's going to be as politically advantageous as people are pitching it to me. I'm just talking straight on the numbers of it. Does it strike you that way, too? Yeah, according to a poll done by the Washington Examiner, you know, it's 60 percent of people polled said it would be unfair for those who didn't go to college to have to pay off the debts of those who did. You know, just about half of the American public, according to this poll, also believes it'd be unfair to those who took on debts and paid them off to then have to subsidize other people. So it's not like a, you know, 90-10 split. It's not like something that's going to energize, you know, the vast majority of Americans. This is going to make some people thankful. It's going to tick off a heck of a whole lot of other people 
And, you know, what are you really left with at the end of the day if you're the Democrats, if you're Biden? You're, you still got young people who are upset at the cost of living. You still got young people who are upset about a whole other variety of issues. So is it really worth, you know, screwing up our economy and ticking off, you know, half of the American public to maybe get the youth vote up just a little bit? I don't think so. Yeah, and I'm not sure this is aimed at the youth vote anyway. I think this is aimed at some the donor class, for lack of a better way, but that's just my opinion. Uh, let me ask you a couple of things that you touched in on your piece, because you didn't just complain about it. You also offered some solutions. Here's a solution that I think would be, this would be a regulatory solution. This would be a really quick thing to do. I think it's the most common sense way to do it. Uh, talk about the bankruptcy option, because we have protected student loan debt from bankruptcy. And I'm saying protected in air quotes here, because that's a fallacy. Why can't, why is this the only debt in America that people can't discharge through bankruptcy, which is a fair process, which lets people fairly deal with their creditors and get some actual relief that's court mandated and protected, but not if you're a student loan debt. That doesn't make sense to a lot of folks. Why can't we just go that route? Yeah, well, one interpretation of the golden rule is uh, he who has the gold makes the rules, right? So you've got a lot of lobbyists from Sally May, a lot of lobbyists from the banks who made it so difficult for people to declare bankruptcy on their student loan debts. So that way the lenders could keep lending it out and having no repercussions if the loans didn't pan off. So you relax some of those laws. You allow people who may have been, you know, arguably, you know, put into this predatory system. And I'm, I'm willing to call it a predatory system. That doesn't excuse the fact that we can just wipe all these loans off, but it's set up for a lot of people to fail, right? If they actually had to take on the risk of these lenders of saying, hey, we might lose our investment on these loans if these people just aren't making enough money or they made a poor decision. They went to study underwater basket, leaving their $100,000 in debt, uh, then maybe they would be less likely to actually give out that mass sum of loans in the first place. Um, so simply put, if you put the lenders on the hook and you allow people to declare bankruptcy, that has an effect where there's less loans going out there's less loans going out. The cost of college goes down. People can actually afford it without drowning in debt. Seems like a win-win to me. Yeah, Sean Tima joining us. Uh, I'm a practical guy. If we had a perfect world system where people sat down and discuss things, you know, even though I don't think it's the greatest thing in the world, I would trade an X amount of student loan debt to reform the system. I think that would be a good fair trade. But I think the repercussions here is if you don't reform the system first and then you forgive the debt, you're just increasing the predatory nature of the debt system. Am I wrong to think that way? Because I know even some pretty hardcore conservative people are like, look, if you can reform the system, you take the short term hit to get the long term benefit. I, I'd write off 30, 40, 50, whatever X amount of dollars to fix the system that's billions of dollars of predatory debt. But I don't see that here. I see something that might perpetuate the problem. Is that how you see it? Yeah, the top priority has got to be getting the cost of college down. And you can only do that by taking approaches that are going to hurt, you know, the elite class, uh, you know, in D.C. Um, and I really think, you know, and people say this is bold. People say this will have repercussions. But I really think the only way that we have a quick fix on this or something that makes a huge impact is if you take the root of the problem right at the heart of the problem. And that is cutting off, you know, these federal student loans for several years until colleges have to readjust and figure out what the heck is going on with their prices. Because they, they're able to jack up these prices because they know the government is going to take on the footing of the bill. 92% of all loans are federally guaranteed. That is unlike any other uh, free market system that's out there. Any other business can't afford to run on that. They have to set the prices to normal rates. 
but colleges get a free pass and administrators get all this extra money to spend on, on frivolous things and banks are making hand over fist. I don't think that's fair to the student. So you take out the student loan program altogether. Colleges have to trim the fat. They have to reset the normal. Then maybe we can actually start having a conversation about what to do to make amends from there. But you've got to get the cost of college down first. So legislatively, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon for a lot of reasons, because let's face it, both parties, a lot of them are higher education, most of them Ivy League educated in a lot of different ways. So let's talk about the other end of it, something we can maybe do. I think the real um, insipidous part of this thing is, and you touched in on, on your piece, and even people who are for student loan debt admit this is the problem. We are funneling kids into the college system that have no business going to college. And I don't mean they're not able to, they just don't want to or whatever. But this idea that every single kid has to go to college and therefore every single kid has to pay into the college system, I think that's where the real root of this problem is. That's something that's a cultural change, which is a hard change to do. It's a structural change in secondary education. That's also something we don't need legislative to do. That's something that can start being changed as a mentality. Where do you see that we can go in that direction in some practical ways? Yeah, it's it's on us. It's on business leaders. It's on parents. It's on families to just resist the uh, poor financial decision for a lot of these folks. Um, you know, you think of my cousin, right? My cousin's an incredibly gifted, uh, you know, a, a tradesman. He, he's studying to be an electrician now, but he went to two community colleges, racked up some debt and realized, hey, this isn't the place for me. I'm going to go to trade school. Um, he instinctually wanted to go to trade school, but he thought that his ticket to prosperity and that the right thing to do was to go to college, right? In liberal arts, because that's what he was told was a marker of success. Um, and there's no, you know, one legislative bill or, you know, one statement from a president that's going to change that. I mean, that's just got to come from a bottom-up solution, you know, from family saying, you know what, it's okay if my kid does not go to college. Because you look at the data, people who go to trade school, people who take alternate paths, when you factor out the student loan debt, when you look at the starting salaries of a lot of these jobs, they end up evening out with a lot of liberal arts degrees without the debt. So we just got to be able to continue to share that information and make that a cultural norm, person by person, leader by leader, until we start to see a cultural change. Now, folks will argue, Sean Tima joining us, that you need to keep up with high tech stuff. But the fact of the matter is companies like even like an Amazon and Google, they're starting to have in-house recruiting now where they're bringing people straight in. They're doing in-house training and quote unquote college in-house so that they have those employees from the go. It's almost the old apprenticeship starting to reemerge because even these major companies are like, hey, these these degrees are all kind of running together and they're not telling us anything about what kind of employee we're getting. So the old argument that to be high tech, you got to go to college, it's not holding up. And I think the other thing that's not getting talked about is you just spent two years telling kids they could do school online. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of kids are going to like the flexibility. They don't like it for high school because of the social stuff. A lot of those community college kids, a lot of those trade school kids. I think you're going to see an explosion of online learning or high, probably more specifically hybrid learning where they're like, hey, I can do this cheaper on the road, plus I can mm. work or I can work on my online stuff or I can work on my influencing or whatever the case may be. 
I think there's going to be a cultural change long before there's an institutional change. And maybe that's how this starts to get changed a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And that's, you know, a silver lining of COVID. We have to look for those silver linings. And one of those is realizing, hey, I can progress, you know, in my uh, quote unquote necessary, you know, education behind the computer screen, right? To, to get what it takes to actually get out there and get the job and get the qualifications. Um, so I think people are going to be a lot more accustomed to online learning. I think too, you know, you mentioned Amazon and Google. There are some private businesses that are really stepping up the way I see it and providing those transformative uh, solutions and breaking the mold like Praxis, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They're a group that is an alternative to college. You know, it's apprenticeship based. So the idea is you go in, you pay the tuition, you get trained up for six months, you do a, maybe a one year apprenticeship. Uh, and by the end of that apprenticeship, uh, if you succeed, you will have earned back the tuition that you paid into Praxis in the first place, right? So it's kind of like a, a wrinkle in time of getting you from uh, you know, the classroom into the job you want rather than having to do the four years of college and all the debt. Um, these programs are out there. And you know, with, with good marketing and good word of mouth, we can make people realize that, hey, the, the four-year university model is not the only way to go. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you one more thing before we let you go. You touched in it on your piece. Uh, I'm a lower level guy. I think lower level is a good way to start with a solution. Maximizing people's own money for college. We talked about how ridiculously expensive it is, but there is some ways we can practically let people do it. You talked about 529 investments. Um, I've got a daughter that's got a 529. She got it from the uh, do it for baby dog COVID vaccination program of all the things. Uh, but I mean, it's a fantastic thing. It's a large amount of money. It's in a 529 actually draws interest. She earned money on it before she even started cracking it for her college stuff. What would it take to do some, just some basic regulatory form? Because the truth of the matter is these 529s are wonderful tools. There's a lot of IRS restrictions and gatekeeping on how the money can get into them, get out of them. There could be some regulatory fixes here that just lets people use their own money more effectively in higher education, isn't there? Absolutely. Well, the two main ones you have are 529s and then something called a Coverdale ESA. Both of them, you're able to put money in and get some tax benefits, able to draw that money tax-free when it's time to pay for college. But the problem is there's all these hidden rules built in. Like in the 529s, you can't invest in most mutual funds or ETFs or individual stocks. It has to be these pre-approved sets of investment options. In the Coverdale ESAs, you can take more risk with the range of uh, you know investment portfolio options, but you can only give two thousand dollars a year. So why these are there? Uh, I I think the burden of proof is to on the other person to tell me why they're there in terms of why we shouldn't be able to take greater risks. You know, with with funding and education, especially when the government has jacked up the price so much. But if you just remove some of those barriers, you let people invest in cryptocurrency and in individual stocks. You remove the two thousand dollar cap. You know, let people take risks with their own money that they have earned. Clearly, the government doesn't know how to manage money well for $30 trillion in debt. Social Security is going insolvent. Who are they to tell the American citizen, actually, we need to help you make sure you don't lose your money? Uh, seems kind of ridiculous to me. And if you never heard of the Coverdales, they're kind of, think IRA, you can only put X amount of money into them. That's sort of the model that was based on of. All right, Sean, one last question for you. Uh, I know we talked about this. This is a loud issue. It's probably going to get louder, especially if uh, President Biden takes action on it. Let's assume he does this $10,000 proposal and just basically nobody's happy with it. What's the next phase of this debate, do you think? Yeah, well, it really depends who is in power, right? If this mobilizes, you know, uh, right of center turnout, 
and you've got the Democrats losing because they gave $10,000, I don't see the Republican Party, when they control the House and Senate, letting any kind of uh, student loan debt relief pass through, right? But if something wild happens and this mobilizes more Democratic turnout because they say, hey, they didn't go far enough, you vote for us, we're actually going to push Biden to do more, right? Then you have a, a long shot chance of this being the stepping stone to full debt relief, right? Either way, let's remember, it's not fair to rob Peter to pay Paul, right? People took out those loans. They can pay them off. More than about half of everyone who took out student loans has paid them off. This is not some impossible task to consider. Personal responsibility, fiscal responsibility go a long way, right, in terms of developing you know, the citizens we like to see today, and we can't afford it. So no relief should be given. We should focus our energy on reforming the system, make it easier for people to get out of the debt, and for that debt to not even be a possibility in the first place. I think that's how you get to a fairer system, a more sustainable system, and one that isn't built on just political appeal to uh, staying in office. Yeah, Sean Tima joining us. We also need to point out here, uh, this executive action will very definitely wind up in court as well because there's some legalities on how much they can actually do here. So we need to mention that as well. Uh, Sean Tima, thank you so much for the time talking student loan debt. Let folks know where they can follow you, your writing and your social media and whatever else you have going on until we talk to you again. Absolutely. We can follow me on Twitter at Liberty Sean. And you can follow all the great work that uh, Young Americans for Liberty is doing at, at YA Liberty, one L. And uh, his piece is in the American Spectator. We will link to it in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. Sean, thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it, sir. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll talk again soon. Flavia Nunez joining us. Um, you just mentioned it, so let's just go there. Um, there's no ducking that this is a business model for a lot of people, including the schools, including others. That debt you're taking on, you talked about that narrow window from the time you do your FAFSA, you get your acceptance letter, you've got a very small window to decide whether you're going to do debt or not. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure because now you've gotten in, are you going to go, that sort of thing. These are. This is an age group. Um, you're taking on debt. They would not give you a car loan at that age with your background. They're not going to give you a house loan. They're not going to give you probably any loan of any kind. And yet you're allowed to take out student loan debt. People accuse it. I've used this terminology, too, that because the entire K through 12 system is designed to be a funnel to higher education in America now, this seems very, very predatory. Is there any other way to describe that, especially when you start talking about the realities of that narrow window where the kids have to decide that, considering this is the only kind of loan of this version that they would be allowed to get legally and yet we let uh, student loans for these young people go it feels predatory it looks predatory and then when you start looking backwards through the student loan debt crisis it really doesn't seem fair to the kids or anybody else am i missing anything there or is that a fair way to adjust that i mean i do believe that that's a word that can be used because a lot of students like i said they're 17 they're 18 but they, when they think college, they think, oh, my God, I'm going to be free. I'm uh, not really going to have pressure from my parents anymore. I'm going to have a lot of this independence. And there's also this, this ranking list and the, the idea of prestige and how much prestige 
counts for. So there is a lot of pressure, most definitely. I mean, there's also pressure from from family figures as well because the FAFSA and um, the other financial aid applications cost money in and of themselves. I mean, personally, I paid close to $1,000 in financial aid applications. So almost when you get back your financial aid offer and it is not as much as you were expecting or little as is willing for you to be able to pay that amount, you kind of are stuck in a zone where you don't know what to do because you've already invested the time in applying, but also know that with that amount of financial aid, you're not really going to get for the FAFSA itself, there's a lot of, there are two kinds of aid that you can get. Grants that you don't have to pay back and loans that you do. Grants are the best kinds of scholarships because it's essentially, um, counselors call it free money. It's a scholarship money that you're given to just study. But loans, you do have to pay back. Uh, sometimes even though they're subsidized, it is difficult. I and mean, when you're just starting, when you're, when you're expected to pay when you graduate, when you're just starting life, you you find difficulty, not just looking for a job, but looking for a living situation. It is, I would say, to a certain level, a business model that has worked in the past. Usually, um, a couple of years ago, I don't remember the exact date, but admission cycles would be much earlier in the year. And so students had a much broader window for to see their financial aid offer and call the financial aid office and appeal for a new decision. There used to be a broader window, but that isn't really, as you can tell, as profitable for colleges. So that window was moved to this month long um, process. For me personally, I did appeal um, a couple financial decisions, but uh, sometimes it's not even the financial aid officers who are at fault because they are truly trying to help you. But a lot of it is just equations that are that are stuck. So you, your family makes a certain amount of money. This is a certain amount of aid you're going to get, no matter where that money is inputted or exactly how financially able you are to pay for that money. I think the root of the problem really is the large amount of money that college costs these days. I mean, it's an amount that is so large for an intangible object. I don't really think that there is anything that costs as much because at least for housing, um, I mean, a house costs an exorbitant amount of money, but it's a physical property that you're going to get. You know exactly what's going to happen right off the bat. For education, it's an investment in your mind, in yourself, but you never really know how that's going to turn out. Yeah, Flavia Nunez joining us. This is why I wanted to discuss this before we get into the numbers and break that down, because that's the part everybody focuses on. They don't focus on the people problem aspect of this. So everything we just said, talking about it being somewhat predatory, talking about the business model contracting it down, there's more and more money, there's more and more pressure to get more money, that shrinks the windows. Everything you just said, one of the largest vocal critics of student loan debt forgiveness is the folks that say, well, it's personal responsibility, nobody made you sign the loan. I understand that. I agree with that in principle. But how do you put a human face on that, too? Because like we said, th this is an age group that wouldn't get a loan for anything other than this. Where do you balance that out? Because, yes, you have personal responsibility, but this isn't happening in a vacuum. This is happening in a sequence of events where there's a lot of pressure put on these very young people to take on this debt. 
What do you think the ratio of personal responsibility to the system is here? I feel, yes, there is some level of personal responsibility because nobody is ever pointing a gun at your head saying, take on this loan or else. Um, so it is your um, decision and you are technically an adult because most people take on this loan at 18. Some people are not. Some people take on this loan at 17 or some people go to college at 16. But at the same time, you are making this decision when your frontal lobe isn't really developed yet either. Um, so, I mean, you can't drink until you're 21 and yet you can take on hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that will affect your life starting at this young age. So I feel like personal responsibility is definitely a factor, but it, like you said, it is this, some, there's definitely somebody taking advantage here in a way that we've seen throughout history. I mean, there's always going to be somebody who pays for a service. And uh, in this case, the service is one that a lot of students don't really know. I mean, what you when you're 18, what you've lived is barely anything at all. You don't really know what it is to be an adult yet. You've lived with your parents or, or, or parental figures. And so you're off in a new place um, worrying about, let's say, doing your laundry for the first time or doing the dishes, maybe not for the first time, but definitely on your own. And just you don't really realize like, how much money it is to take on at such a young age and how much time you'll be paying it back. And so you depend on other people a lot of the time to tell you what to do because you respect older figures. So um, it really depends on the people also that you're surrounded with. Responsibility also lies on them. So I feel like for those who are saying that it is, uh, I guess, it is the fault of whoever signed the loan, I understand. But at the same time, it's the influence around that person and the institutions who have this model going forward. How much does that um, ratio change when you start talking about a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old, that age group that's going to do grad school or post-grad school or doctorate work, things like that? Does that calculus start to change a little bit as you get more older? Like you said, those are younger people. These are people that are more established in the world, know a little bit more. They've gone through the undergrad process, so they know the machinery of it, you know, because college is a machine. You're a cog in it. That's just what it is. Does that calculus change for those folks because they're the ones ability and a little bit more platform, a little bit more noise to make noise about things like student loan forgiveness that we hear from more often. Yeah, most definitely. I feel like for undergraduate, there's a lot of more options if you don't want to take on debt. Um, there are a lot of uh, community colleges available. There are a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but there are some scholarships specifically for undergraduate students who are not financially able to pay. And some scholarships that are just fully merit-based. Um, there is there's a lot more leeway for undergrads than there are for graduate students, I feel. And while some undergraduate students have their debt paid for by the employers they're gonna work with if they work with them after a certain time, a lot of graduate students, I feel, are left with no choice. They really do have to take on this loan, um, or if not, they won't be able to do the things that they necessarily wanna do. Uh, be a researcher, work in academia, become a lawyer, become a doctor. But the logic behind that is that the that it's much it's a much bigger debt to take on graduate school, 
because it's a much bigger degree. Uh, um, it gives you a lot more uh, credibility in your area. And uh, it's definitely what right now some lawmakers are trying to limit. Um, it's this, uh, I forgot the name, but the abbreviation is real. And it's this act put forward by congressional lawmakers that most likely will not be passed because it is conservative in nature at this moment. But it limits grad student loans because that is such a big portion of the $1.7 trillion that we are currently facing today. Yeah, Flavia Nunez joining us. We're going to get into those numbers like she just mentioned. She's got a great piece about why the pause in student debt won't fix the problem. We're also going to talk about the pauses coming off from the COVID age and the abatements. That's all coming to end. What's that means? More with Flavia Nunez right after this on her tip. All right, here we go. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Flavia. We're talking student loan uh, debt forgiveness, but also how that debt comes, trying to put a human face on it, not just talking the numbers of it. You've got a great piece up about at the chalkboard review about pausing student debt won't fix the problem. We understand during the COVID age, um, they pause student debt. Right now, the official listing for how much student debt is over 90 days is only at 5%, but that's a false number. And it's a false number because they paused everything. That pause is getting ready to come off. The COVID era funding is getting ready to come off. Practically speaking, what is that going to mean? Come so right now, um, Biden uh, has promised to announce a permanent solution for uh, this $1.7 trillion problem. So because the student pause has been, it started during the Trump administration, it's been uh, extended seven times for over two years. So as it's set to end this August, there's a lot of pressure on the White House to make a definite statement about student loan cancellation, which they ran on during the elections. So his plan right now is to cancel $10,000 per every eligible uh, borrower. When I mean plan, I mean this is what has been discussed, what has been hinted at, but nothing has officially been said. He wants to cancel $10,000 per eligible borrower, which is anybody making, I believe, less than 150000 a year. When that happens, there's, as you can guess, a lot of contention whether this is a good idea or a bad mistake. But at the same time, it, this idea lacks support from both sides of the aisle um, cancellation on a broad scale is not really seen as acceptable by the right and is not really enough. $10,000 is not enough for the left to be able, they believe, to make everybody who has student loan debt uh, stand on an equitable basis. So I feel as if the decisions right now at a standstill, Biden promised to have answers by April, but that that didn't necessarily happen. He promises to have answers by August. That could or could not happen. If it does, the education department has already a plan in place. Uh, leaked documents show that they have plans to expand borrower defense to repayment, 
um, and really streamline the process of broad cancellation for more and more students. What that means is we can't really necessarily say or know, but taxpayers will be taking the brunt of it as this, these loans are funneled through taxpayer dollars that are expected to be repaid to the government. And when they're no longer repaid, it's just the people that foot the bill are not ones who have a say in the game. And the pressure on them, because let's be adults here. We understand what's going on. We've talked about the postgraduate debt being a kind of a separate beast from the undergrad debt. That class of folks, predominantly, we don't want to get too much here, but predominantly, it's going to be a different class of people than some of the undergrads that are taking on debt. These are people that have more influence. These are people that are more established in their careers, probably. They're probably in a little bit different social standings. That affects this, right? Because one of the criticisms of wide student loan debt uh, is what you talked about earlier. The postgraduate debt is a different beast than the undergraduate debt. It's a different group of people who is it. But that's also the group that's got, you know, the political power and the social media platforming and the media platforming, because let's be honest, the media, almost all of them are um, college graduates and that sort of thing. Is that where this pressure is really coming from or is it more organic than that? No, most definitely. I feel like it would be a little naive to think that those who are pushing forward, who are making a student debt cancellation, a broader topic, a broader point of discussion, don't have a personal say in the game. It is very likely that those who want student debt to be canceled have a lot of student debt themselves, and very likely that those who don't want student debt to be canceled do not have a lot of their own. Um, so while you could stand on each topic as, like, let's say, a political view or an ideological view, like you're just against um, having the government play a broader role, and so because you lean typically conservative or you just want better welfare because you lean typically left. There is, I feel, as with a lot of things, but especially with the student debt crisis, a personal uh, reason to be involved. Because if you fight on, let's say, if you really expand this topic on and, and have a large voice, a large journalistic voice on social media or in the media itself, and are able to reach more people or reach lawmakers or influence the Biden administration in any way, you have the, you stand to gain a lot in terms of how much, let's say, student debt you will not have anymore after that moment. And there's a lot of, you, you lose, you're going to lose hard or you're going to gain a lot. It could be an organic thing because $1.7 trillion is not something that can be ignored in any capacity, but I do feel like there is a lot of personal motivation in the conversation. been talking mostly we and i did it on purpose we wanted to start with the personal side of this because this gets real buzzwordy real gets real sloganistic but you and in your piece we're linking to it as always please read the piece in its full at chalkboard review we've got the links in the show notes um we've got to deal with the root cause which is about as impersonal as you get the institutional structure of how all this is designed 
and you touched on it in your piece, the root problem with the student loan crisis is also the root problem with education, higher education in general, the astronomical cost. Uh, college is four times easily more expensive than it was 50 years ago. It's mostly administrative cost, infrastructure cost, those kind of costs that are driving this charge. That's the root cause. Is there anything at all to be done about that? Because as long as that beast needs fed, they're going to be looking at student loans and the financial system as the way to do it, right? Oh, no, for sure. I mean, if student loans are canceled and you set a precedent uh, for that kind of cancellation, then and they're promptly offered with less requirements, then colleges will only have an incentive to raise prices more because they realize that loans are more available to students and students are more likely to take them on with the expectation that they will be canceled. So these astronomical costs of college really started after 1978, after the Middle, Middle Income Student Assistance Act of 1978. They, um, it made subsidized student loans much more broader. They, it, it, it made them much more available to other students. And so you saw this astronomical rise in prices simply because, again, colleges will still have consumers willing to pay for it because now they have this money available to them that is easily accessible, even though that money isn't technically their own. So these astronomical costs of college are, um, now that I, I started college, I didn't really understand before. I don't think you really can until you sit in the classroom and realize, okay, my tuition doesn't cover this class. It covers um, campus health. It covers uh how much mental health services on campus. It covers all the recreational services, the gym, the conference rooms, the libraries. And this question, I mean, this is just a theory of where the money is going. We don't really know because institutions are not required to disclose that information. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, one of the long-running stories of the last 18 months is actually something that didn't happen. We're going to recap and talk about it with our friend Charles Brand. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's doing the studying thing at GW Law. Really impressive young man. Excited to talk to him. Charles, how are you, my friend? Great to have you. I'm great, Andrew, and thank you for those kind words. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. You did some writing about the hot, one of the real hot political topics and then it came for not. And then all of a sudden, it's amazing. The Senate and the House are out of session. Nobody's been talking about this for about two or three weeks. Ain't it funny how that works out? We're talking about the filibuster, of course. Let's start big picture, though, because now that this has died down, now that we listened to this for two years and Joe Manchin's going to end the Republic and da 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 da, let's just start simple and work back mm -hmm. through this because I think there's a lot of lessons to learn here. Uh, but start with what the filibuster is, not the buzzword the actual device as a legislative tool for the United States Senate? Absolutely. So the Senate filibuster is the 22nd rule of the Senate. Um, and it provides that 60 votes, 60 senators are necessary to invoke what is called cloture, which essentially uh, is a motion to end debate on a bill and to put that bill on a conveyor belt to passage. 
over the years, um, unlimited debate has uh, been pretty universal in the Senate going you know, all the way back to the founding. Uh, but the modern filibuster really didn't come apart, uh, come about until 1917, when under the pressure of um, Woodrow Wilson, the uh, Republicans in the Senate acquiesced and allowed uh, cloture to be put in the Senate rulebook. In the 1970s, uh, the threshold was actually lowered from 67 senators, so two thirds of that body, the same amount constitutionally required to ratify a treaty, from uh, to, to, to 60 votes, which is now three fifths of that body, which is seven less, of course. So it's less onerous than it was in the 1970s. So in sum, the Senate filibusters, the 22nd rule of the Senate, um, and it imposes a supermajority requirement on the passage of traditional policy-based legislation. I say traditional policy-based legislation because there is um, a carve-out for the filibuster provided in the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. Um, that procedure is called budget reconciliation. I'm sure uh, many of your listeners have heard those dreaded words, uh-oh, budget reconciliation, done, done, done. Um, you know, what is Joe Manchin okay today? Or what is Kristen Cinema okay today? Well, budget reconciliation allows certain measures uh, with budgetary impact, budgetary impact that is beyond merely incidental, mind you, to, to go through the Senate, the, the upper chamber of Congress with only 51 votes. And it limits debates, uh, I believe, at 20 hours in the Senate and 10 hours between both houses. So there is no unlimited debate for bills uh, enacted through budget reconciliation. But the Senate Byrd Rule, another institutional norm of the Senate, prevents senators from lodging policies into budget reconciliation bills, generally speaking. Those measures have to be, strictly speaking, budgetary. Yeah, and the Byrd Rule is for Robert C. Byrd, longtime uh, senator from the state of West Virginia, who absolutely reveled in arcane measures of how the Senate worked. It's another story for another day. But he loved that kind of stuff. That's what he delved into, and that's one of the things he put in place. We all know this, of course, because we just watched the reconciliation process. We now have a more uh, colloquial term for it called Votorama that we've done now done twice in the last few weeks using this process. But that's all because they're trying to go around filibusters. They're trying to work around majorities. Let's just cut to the chase here. Now that we've gone through this process and people were screaming that we have to change the filibuster and we didn't change the filibuster and we still got this legislative package and other things. Uh, gun control got passed. If you told anybody in the spring that gun control would get through Congress, this Senate and this Congress, they would have thought you were crazy. Yet it happened after Uvalde. They got uh, the. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act, Build Back Mansion, whatever you want to call it, they got that through. Here was my problem all along with filibuster, and it wouldn't have mattered. You know, the Democrats are nominally in power, but they have a split Senate, so not really. Was there any version of get rid of the filibuster that doesn't start when either side proposes it with my side isn't getting our way? Let's get rid of this. Short answer no, absolutely not. Um, in fact, I might go so far as to say that a, a, an exception to the filibuster or a carve out uh, to the filibuster is, is, is a mischaracterization. In truth, were one side of the aisle to, to ditch the Senate filibuster, which only requires 51 votes, mind you. So a simple majority of the Senate can, can, can modify the Senate rulebook. 
It's called the nuclear option, and for good reason. Uh, the, the Senate uh, filibuster, you know, looking at, at recent history, you know, look at, at Donald Trump's presidency. I believe at one point he uh, threatened uh, pulling the nuclear trigger and nuking the filibuster to, to get funding for his border wall. It was, it was something like that. Luckily, Mitch McConnell uh, refused to acquiesce in that uh, uh, demand. And, and so Trump didn't get his funds for the border wall, or at least not <laughs> the, 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 the uh, perhaps constitutionally proper way. Um, if we look at Joe Biden's presidency and all the times that, that, that Joe Biden has uh, inched toward nuking the filibuster or his, his congressional Democrats have, have advocated for, for the nuclear option, it's been when Republicans have signaled that they're not gonna sign on to a, a, a partisan uh, legislative ambition. Um, back last year, it was voting rights. Um, uh, Democrats had the ambition to enact HR1, which would have nationalized voting laws across the country and provided for certain uh, basic um, guarantees insofar as like ID is concerned. It would actually void voter ID laws in all uh, in most most states in the union. So th there was that. It ended up getting watered down by Joe Manchin, but Republicans weren't willing to sign on to that either. Uh, Democrats have have discussed doing it to to codify uh, the the abortion protections enshrined in Roe versus Wade and and uh, Casey, our Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, but Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin have been resolute in their uh, their. Um, their loyalty to the filibuster and in, in not abandoning that role. So just looking at modern history, we can see that it, it would appear the nuclear option is only invoked or only threatened when one side's agenda is stymied. But it's more complicated. If we go back to 2013, we can actually see that Harry Reid uh, started this nuking process, so to speak, when Republicans in the Senate were filibustering all of President Obama's um, judicial appointees uh, Senator Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader from Nevada, decided to ditch the filibuster, the 60-vote threshold, for all executive appointees and judicial appointees except Supreme Court justices. That was in 2013. Well, lo and behold, in 2017, uh, Mitch McConnell um, said, "Well, hey, I'll do you one better, and I'm going to ditch. I'm going to ditch the filibuster for." Supreme Court nominees in addition to the rest. So we kind of finished off the filibuster for nominees. And now uh, we have three appointees from uh, uh, appointed by Donald Trump, all of whom voted uh, to, to overturn Roe v. Wade in June in, in the Dobbs decision. Interesting, huh? That Harry Reid's decision in 2013, in my view, is somewhat responsible for our current court composition. Uh, and I think responsible for some of the decisions they've handed down this term, which has been groundbreaking for the conservative legal movement in more ways than one. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Yeah, and doesn't this come down to when you start talking about something that is a rule, you mentioned it's the 22nd one, so it wasn't the first and it's not going to be the last rule of the Senate. This is self-imposed by the Senate. This isn't something it's within the boundaries of their constitutional authority, but it's not in the Constitution. This is something that they've already done carve outs for. They've talked about doing other carve outs. That's the argument that they were pitching Cinnamon Mansion going, okay, well, we'll just do a voting carve out or we'll just do an economic carve out or we'll just do a, you know, purple hippopotamus carve out, whatever the case is going to be next week when we come back again. That's the that's the mechanism of filibuster. The overall picture of the filibuster, though, and Joe Manchin basically made this argument in defending it was look at how the Senate functions. If you look historically trend-wise, the Senate and Congress and the presidency, the the triplicate where one party has all three is usually short-lived. The American people kind of like, because of their voting record, whatever they say in polling, they like split government. They, they kind of like the gridlock. So when you've got like a 50-50 Senate, is it unfair to say it's it's kind of hard to argue that you need to get rid of this rule because you have a mandate for such and such when you have a 50-50 Senate to start with and an American voting populace that has a habit of splitting the government uh, pretty regularly after somebody has control of all three branches, at least over the last 20-some years. I think the American people are definitely a fan of supermajority requirements uh, for, for, for voting, at least with respect to the filibuster in that you know, maybe Democrats were disappointed or, or not maybe, they were extremely disappointed by some of the things that, that they were not able to enact. The solution is obvious, however, it's uh, elect more Democrats in the Senate. You'll recall that uh, in November, 2020, Democrats lost very winnable Senate races um, in Maine, um, in North Carolina, and I'm sure there were others as well. Um, they could have uh, gotten together in an alternate on an alternate timeline sufficient votes to to ditch the senate filibuster enact hr1 or something similar uh in addition to to build back better in in its in its original form which would have been you know just massive in terms of the cost um so too would republicans have had victories in in, in you know between 2017 and 2018 donald trump could have perhaps passed a nationwide right to work law uh, he could have maybe secured additional funding for the southern border, uh, changed immigration policies. Uh, you know, there were still abortion protections enshrined in Roe v. Wade at that time. But but now, you know, ostensibly Republicans could could take uh, take an axe to abortion protections provided for by state law. I think there might be constitutional reservations to such a to such a piece of legislation, but. The point is that it's an insurance mechanism for the opposition party. It basically ensures, okay, uh, right now we're in the right now we're in the minority. We're the opposition. Well, we're able to use the filibuster to stop the legislation the majority would like to enact. Legislation that our constituents in our in our blue states are simply not a fan of. So during the Donald Trump presidency, that would include right to work laws, for instance. The unions are no fan. 
But upon Joe Biden's inauguration, Democrats would have been able to reverse will repeal and then reverse each and every one of the aforementioned conservative victories I've just listed. They would have been able to do it uh, with just a simple majority in the Senate. It would not be safeguarded by the 60 vote threshold. And so as a result, the policy landscape of the country would be more pendular. It would swing back and forth every two to six years as the Senate changed hands. And every election for the Senate, so every midterm even, would basically be an existential contest for, for, for legislative domination over the entire country. The filibuster by being a minoritarian institution, one which gives disproportionate influence to the opposition party, serves the constitutional function that our framers envisioned. Alexander Hamilton imagined the Senate as the kind of deliberative cooling saucer of national politics. I think where bad ideas would go to die uh, and good ideas would go to get better, to become sharpened uh, before, before being promulgated nationwide. So I think it's an insurance policy of, of, of sorts for the minority party, the opposition, currently the Republicans. Uh, imagine how unhappy they would be had Mitch McConnell buckled under the pressure from President Trump, um, they would be, I would imagine, uh, despondent as we speak, um, as Democrats would have been in 2017, 2018. But notice how in each situation, nuking the filibuster makes one half of the country extremely unhappy and I think feel extremely unstable insofar as their policy expectations are concerned. Yeah. Talking to Charles Brand, our friend, uh, we're going to continue to talk about the filibuster. We're going to get into the politics of it. We talked about the legal ramifications. We talked about the policies of it. We're going to talk about the politics a little bit more. He's got a piece out in American Thinker about the filibuster. Going to continue to talk to Charles Brandt on her tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. He just had a shot at chai tea, so he's ready to go. He is Charles Brand. He's our friend from Young Voices. Uh, he's a GW Law. Uh, we talked about the mechanics of this because it is a Senate rule, and those kind of get arcane and, and nuts and boltsy and wonky real quick. We talked about the policies of it. Let's talk the political side of this for just a minute. Uh, all for the last two years. And it was the Democrats pushing it. And again, it's not that the Republicans wouldn't do it. That's just how it happened to fall this time. The Democrats were basically arguing that, well, unless you either change the rules of the Senate and give us more seats in the Senate or you do the filibuster, we're never going to get anything passed. Well, now we got some data. They got plenty of stuff passed. They actually had a pretty, you know, the supporters of President Biden are having a pretty good run of going, well, look at all the stuff we've accomplished legislatively. That kind of hurts that argument. And then the other thing that hurts that argument is you're looking now with the benefit of hindsight, they've got a pretty good look at maybe even holding the Senate or maybe even taking it out right now. Isn't part of the discussion here that we don't talk about with the filibuster is politics change way faster than we think it is. 
So maybe we should be really, really slow about pulling up the old farm jugs. Like if you go out in a field and there's a fence there, it's probably there for a reason. You probably don't want to take it down. It, don't we need a little bit more of that in this debate of like, okay, in the moment we have this heated rhetoric, we got to pass this right now or the earth's going to just splatter into a thousand pieces, that kind of just insane rhetoric. And then you look at it a couple months later, it's like, man, the Democratic Party is actually in pretty good shape here, all things considered. Isn't that an argument for some moderation here? I think that's a great point. I mean, look at Joe Biden's legislative achievements. Uh, even if you disagree, I mean, he, he has been... Uh, or, or rather the Democrats in Congress have been relatively prolific these past two years. They passed uh, 1.9 trillion in spending uh, through the, the American Rescue Plan. Uh, they passed about, uh, I think, 900 billion, about a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, something Donald Trump could not get across the finish line. Um, and they just recently okayed, I, I, I think, about 700 billion in, in taxes and spending uh, for, for predominantly the climate lobby. Um, so, so insofar as legislative accomplishments are concerned, I think Democrats have a strong case to make to their voters, their base, that they have delivered um, to say nothing on the merits of what they've, they've enacted these past couple of years. But I think you're right. Oh, you know, it's how, how often have we heard this? Oh, if we don't nuke the filibuster, we're not gonna get anything done. Republican obstructionism will, will define the entire Joe Biden presidency. Well, really, that's not true, um, as we've seen. A lot of uh, what stood in the way wasn't Republican, uh, wasn't Republicans at all, but actually Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Um, she, uh, I think, took out certain um, equity provisions that she wasn't a fan of as, as they were going through budget reconciliation, and, and, and Joe Manchin slipped in a couple provisions that might, you know, sweeten the situation for, for uh, you know, oil, you know, getting oil permits or, or, or things like that. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the legislative record here suggests that they didn't need the filibuster. Um, they perhaps needed the filibuster to enact the original version of Build Back Better and have, you know, Sarah Gideon beat Susan Collins in 2020. Um, you know, we might be having a very different conversation right now. But she didn't. She didn't. And Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, uh, both of whom represent uh, you know, relatively conservative states calculated that it, it simply wasn't worth it, perhaps for political reasons, but also I think for institutional reasons. They've both spoken about uh, the negative, you know, policy consequences that would befall the nation were the filibuster not there to kind of slow uh, the process and call for deliberation before we, we, we enact revolutionary change. Uh, about a month ago, and the news hook for my piece with American Thinker was that Democrats were, were in front of the Supreme Court, again, calling uh, for the elimination of the filibuster. Uh, there it was um, abortion, uh, specifically nuke the filibuster to codify Roe v. Wade. Um, what's somewhat short-sighted about that uh, you know, proposal is that it's not even uh, you know, constitutionally certain that the federal government could regulate abortion if it wanted to. Uh, prior to Roe, the hook was the 14th Amendment, which allows the federal government to enforce certain uh, fundamental liberties against the state governments. With that gone, there's really no independent basis for the federal government to regulate abortion or to provide access, therefore, unless maybe it's the Commerce Clause. But that aside, what you see is a lot of screaming, a lot of our priorities are the most important and we need to pass them now. There's very little uh, 
pondering of the long-term consequences. And when I say long-term, I mean like more than two weeks. Um, it, it, you, you mentioned that, that Republicans, or excuse me, that Democrats could, could hold on to the Senate or perhaps expand their majority and actually take their nominal majority to an actual majority. I think the polling suggests that that's totally possible. Some of these polls coming out of uh, Pennsylvania um, and, and Arizona are just uh, seem pretty brutal, you know, Pennsylvania especially. It's equally likely, I think, Republicans could take the chamber um, and Republicans could take the House. And though Joe Biden would be there to, to, to veto legislation enacted by a Republican Congress, um, in 2024, that might very well not be the case. And this goes back to what I was saying before, where like, you know, we'd have a very, we'd have very pendular policies, which wouldn't be good for the country. It wouldn't be good for taxpayers. It wouldn't be good for any person just planning their activity in the national economy. It's good to know, you know, what the law actually says. With no filibuster, I imagine you have this very pendular effect going back and forth between a liberal America and a conservative America. But the politics of it, in short, are very myopic. They're concerned with shoving policies the opposition despises down the opposition's throat. They're not so much concerned with the long-term growth, uh, prosperity, um, and stability of our nation. Yeah, and I think um, Charles Brandt joining us. Part of this is, and we've been beating up on the Democrats a little bit because we've been listening to them howl about it for the last 18 months. Let's not be myopic ourselves. Let's remember, and you touched on it in your piece, it was President Trump that for the better part of almost three years straight was howling at Mitch McConnell and them to get rid of the filibuster to push through all his stuff. McConnell uh, resisted that. This is always going to be a bipartisan thing where whoever's in power and they don't have 60 votes, because I don't know that we'll get to that threshold anytime soon, at least probably the next few election cycles, certainly. If you're not going to have a, a large majority in the Senate, that party that has the majority, but not enough of a majority, is going to howl about this, and they're going to want to reach for that tool. What's the institutional argument besides the partisanship, besides the I just want to do this? And you've touched on it a little bit, but just to find it down for us, what's the institutional argument of, hey, we have this rule specifically because there aren't big majorities right now in our current election cycles, and y'all going to have to work together a little bit here. I know everybody hates that bipartisan word, but that's pretty much what you're getting when you enforce this, the rules put in place. Dare I say it, for all the banging I do on the U.S. Senate as being somewhat of a clown show from time to time, like Voterama last weekend when it was, Maybe, maybe the senators that put these rules in might have known what they were doing. So at, at our core, our country is a union of 50 semi-sovereign republics. In his uh, famous dissent from a case decided in the early 1900s called Lochner, uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, expressed that the Constitution was designed for people of many different viewpoints for people of many different backgrounds, for people of many different ideologies. Those ideologies manifest themselves in the policies of the state governments. California is very different from Texas, which is very different from Ohio, which is very different from Vermont. Those voters have spoken, uh, and those uh, voters have decided to take their republic, their semi-sovereign, uh, semi-autonomous, mini-republic in a certain direction perhaps against uh, the grain of the other states. But let us not forget that 
at our core, we are not a democracy. We are a republic. We're a, a democratic republic, a constitutional republic, but a republic. And the Senate was designed to be an anti-democratic element of that republic, one which furthers the interests of the state governments, the states as institutions, often at the expense of popular opinion. When one half of the country, or rather, were one half of the country able, on the thinnest of margins, to scarf policies down the other half of the country's throat, I think it would breed a lot of partisan rancor in our politics more than we even see today. You would have big states teaming up on small states like Wyoming, uh, like Vermont, like New Hampshire, like Rhode Island, um, like Alaska. Um, our framers understood that rural states were always going to have different wants and needs from their urban counterparts and now their suburban counterparts and the senate which came about uh, through something called the connecticut compromise a compromise between the big states and the small states as they were working together to draft the united states constitution allowed the small states to have equal say to the large states that of which they sorely lack in the house of representatives mind you california has over 50 representatives in the house um, itty bitty Alaska has won. Um, so the Senate in general was a means of ensuring equality among the states. The Senate filibuster is an even more onerous anti-majoritarian requirement on top of it all. One which requires that there be a consensus among the states, a supermajority of states before the country enact revolutionary legislation. I wanna talk for a minute about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is a monumental piece of legislation, one that was instrumental in breaking down Jim Crow and its grip on the Southern states of our country. But let's not forget that Brown versus Board of Education actually already required the states to desegregate with quote all deliberate speed whatever that means um they were slow rolling it for years the southern states were were, were slow rolling it um uh, and and the civil rights act i think really was what pushed the nation over the finish line to ripping jim crow from the roots up by having to surmount a filibuster of Southern senators and getting, I think, over 70 votes in the Senate. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was furnished with a super, a, 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 a legitimizing quality to it. And what I mean to say is because the South was able to air its grievances for extended periods of time on the floor of the Senate, but the majority was relentless and was able to cobble together the votes to get the Civil Rights Act across the finish line and to President Johnson's desk, 
the South, I think, was forced to contend with this legitimizing force of a supermajority. There's this scholar named Keith Whittington who has this kind of supermajority theory of constitutional legitimacy. The idea is that the Constitution is legitimate because it required a supermajority uh, uh, to come into law, a supermajority of our polity to enact it, to enshrine it as the fundamental law of the land. How is the filibuster any different with respect to just traditional policy-based legislation enacted within the confines of the Constitution? I think it furnishes our most pivotal policy policies with a, a sort of legitimization that forces the, 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 oppo the opponents of those policies to, in a sense, accept their legitimacy as the law of the land. And I think with respect to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, having to get over those relentless, hours-long Southern filibusters, and it wasn't just one per person, it wasn't just Strom Thurmond, I mean, massive delegations of Southern senators were ruthlessly attacking the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But the, the Republicans uh, in the Senate, in addition to the, to the kind of Northern um, Midwestern Democrats, uh, were, were, were quite uh, um, consistent and were able to get together those votes. And I really think it made it a lot harder for the South to resist desegregation much longer. Uh, since I'm on your Twitter feed, you can tell people all about yours. You can also tell them what you've got going on. Till we get you back, my friend, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you got going on until we get you back on Hertel again. First off, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's been a great, uh, great opportunity. Um, your listeners can find me on Twitter. I'm Charlie Brandt 44. Um, and um, you can also look out for my most recent piece in the Federalist if you're um, if you if you have that subscription. It's about the Democrats' most recent uh, plan to put term limits on Supreme Court justices. Great. We'll be looking for that. We will link to all those pieces in our show notes. Like we always say, read the whole thing for yourself, decide for yourself and go from there. Charles Brandt, we'll have you back. Great job today. Appreciate it, my friend. Thanks so much, Andrew. Have a good one. Thank you, sir. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we got to talk about this CHIP Act. You've heard about it. You've seen it. You've seen the acronym. We all know that legislation named something doesn't mean that's what's in the legislation. So we're going to dig into it, turn the noise down on it. We're going to go to Danielle Zanzalari, another one of our great Young Voices contributors. She's an economist and academic up in Seton Hall. Uh, she's based out of New Jersey. Used to be at the Fed, but we're not going to hold her against her for the purposes of this conversation. How are you, my friend? Glad to have you on the program. I'm doing well. How are you this Monday? Fantastic. Love Mondays. Uh, let's just start with the nomenclature. Let's get everybody on the same page. Like we said, legislation is coming fast and furious right now. So people may have a hard time catching up with what is what. What is the CHIP Act? What was it supposed to do? And what did the text of the bill actually wind up doing in a nutshell before we start digging into this thing? So as you mentioned, um, the acts aren't always exactly what they're designed to be or said to be. CHIP stand for semiconductors, but uh, more specifically, creating helpful incentives to produce semiconductors for America Act. 
It provides free money, $52 billion worth of subsidies and tax credits for semiconductor firms to expand their business in the United States, uh, specifically the manufacturing business. But the problem is most of these firms that are going to be receiving this money already started expanding in the United States in 2020 and 2021. In fact, Intel actually had a plant that they were um, breaking ground on and starting in Ohio, but stopped and claimed that they didn't have enough money to finish this unless Congress gave them money. That's not because they actually don't have the money to finish this, but they actually um, could kind of smell that, you know, Congress is willing to give out some free money. So this was kind of a lobbying chip. So big companies like Intel, Texas Instruments, and um, other large companies that are already investing in the U.S. are going to be the primary beneficiaries of this money. Yeah, and we need to talk about, because one of our core principles on this program is things don't happen in a vacuum, they happen in a sequence. So we need to discuss why Intel's pushing this sort of thing and other chip makers. We know what's going on in the world. We saw what happened in Taiwan. We know the mess with China. They kind of have a big hand in this. So yes, the argument is let's get this back on shore. The other part of that is there's already regulation on who can and can't make chips because it can't go to China because of the way we stack this stuff. So all that's going on in the background here, and that's driving the push here of, well, we want domestic chip production, but that also means these companies like Intel, look, this ain't like a mom and pop shop during COVID that needs a handout, right? They're seeing an opportunity going like, oh, well, we need to do this, so let's make sure all that money funnels to us. There's multiple streams going on here at once, isn't there? Yes, there's kind of two arguments here, or economic arguments that um, they were essentially making. The first one being an infant industry argument saying, hey, we're too small to compete with China. We need some help to bring manufacturing here. That is absolutely a lie. Intel is the biggest chip maker in the world. They make about $20 billion a year in profit, which is equivalent to the GDP of some small countries like Jamaica. So, I mean, you have this really large corporation saying, I can't compete with China, even though they are 64% bigger than China's largest semiconductor firm. Um, so that's kind of a bold-faced lie. And the second argument that a lot of chip makers were making um, is the security argument. What if China stops you know, providing their, their chips to uh, our firms here, our technological firms that need a chip? You know, everything nowadays needs a chip in it, whether it's cars or computers. So if China stops working with us, how can life go on? That's kind of the argument they were making to lobbyers, um, excuse me, lobbyers were making to Congress. And um, it was kind of a scare tactic because the truth is the we were already manufacturing chips in the U.S. and there's already the private incentives that exist to manufacture these chips here because as mentioned, we need them for everything. So we already were bringing these uh, chip making manufacturing um, abilities onshore. What's the ratio to scaremongering to issue? Because one thing, and the and the legitimate argument they do have is, China's not a fair competitor. We know they don't practice fairly. We know they don't do free trade. We know they cheat. We know intellectual property stuff. We also know China has you know 750 million people as a workforce pretty much under the thumb of the government. So they're not wrong about that part of it. But these are American companies. And like you said, they have incentives here. Kind of give us a ratio here because, yes, China's a problem. But that doesn't mean we need to change everything here just for that one thing for these companies, right? Right. There's kind of two facets here. Regardless of whether this was passed or not, we don't um, make enough silicone in the U.S. It's not a raw material that just happens to be here. A lot of that raw material is concentrated in East Asia. 
Um, so China does happen to be uh, a main uh, taker from <laughs> taker from the ground. I'm, I'm missing the word here of silicone as well as Russia. China, uh, excuse me, the U.S. can actually get some silicone from our land, but not much. So we still depend on China regardless for this. So we need the base good of silicone. Um, but another fact here, which, uh, you know, you seem to indicate like how much fear mongering is going on. Well, with this act, the new projections are that the U.S. will be the number one chip manufacturer in the world in the next five to 10 years. So it wasn't like, you know, the funny argument, it's not like this bill all of a sudden made, made us number one. We already were laying the groundworks to be really competitive with China because there's already private interest to go ahead and invest in manufacturing in the U.S. Um, this is just kind of boosting that for those already big companies. Yeah, Danielle Zanzalari joining us. Okay, but we know this from history. When we do a big bill like this with a big government intervention, we're putting, you know, even the proponents of it are like, yeah, we're the government's putting their thumb on the scale here. Down the road, is this going to cause a new set of problems, not just solving the ones they purport to fix? Because this is a lot of money going to a very small funnel of companies. Yeah, you're exactly bringing up my main concerns as an economist, that too much power is still being concentrated in just a few companies. What would have been better is giving money, if they want to give money to this industry, to truly infant industries, up and coming competitors, startups that, you know, can co go ahead and compete with Texas Instruments and Intel and um, my um, other micro chip companies because the more competition there are uh, the lower the prices are to consumers and to you know to whatever product these chips are going into yeah now this let's let's go a little big picture here let's zoom out for a second and we'll come back this is a bigger argument in the whole tech sector right now like we know microsoft started in a garage we knew amazon started in a garage we've heard those stories you're not making semiconductor chips on this level in your garage this isn't something that's going to be an emerging industry but you keep talking about an infant industry are they really that concerned about competition or a new model or whatever the next big thing is? When you're talking infant industries, if the big companies are worried about infant industries and one hand claiming to be one on the other hand, making sure they don't create any more of them, that's an economic problem on a bigger scale, isn't it? And we see a lot of that in tech right now. You know, Facebook does that with competitors. There's a lot of other examples. Why is that a big deal to an economist when you start talking about the long term health of the economy in a sector like this? Yeah, great points and great question. Um, one thing is that these uh, companies like Intel and Texas Instruments are not actually saying they are infant industries because I think even the media would laugh at them. But that is actually the argument that they're making, that they need this help from the United States government in order to kind of run with China. Kind of like an infant, you need to kind of assist them before they can go off and, and run on their own. Um, so this is an argument they like to make, but then they also kind of like to crush the actual true infant industries by getting this $52 billion in subsidies that are going to be primarily uh, for companies that already exist. These companies are going to be getting bigger, which makes it harder for the small company to come in and actually compete um, and have any sort of market power in negotiating contracts and getting workers and actually starting up. So as you mentioned, like tech, these big companies get bigger and it's much harder for small entrants to kind of come in. Let's talk on a personal level real quick, because, you you know, you do economics, you understand we get into theory and we get into really big numbers and people start, you know, their eyes roll in the back of their head. You already talked about this. So let's let's bring it back up. Intel was building a plant in Ohio and then stopped because of part of this. This is 
how much of this is them doing it and how much of it was a tactic? A hundred percent tactic. I mean, I can't say, you know, for certainty, but let's be honest, Intel made $20 billion last year. And I mean, that's, that's profit. That's not a, that's not market cap, right? So they are huge. They have money to build a manufacturing firm. They have cash on hand. They can get debt services to build a manufacturing plant and they already had those in place. So stopping their uh, building was completely a tactic to scare politicians. And I mean, why wouldn't politicians kind of want to play ball? Intel has a major uh, lobbyer, the semiconductor industry association, which is quite large, lobbying on their behalf. I mean, look, when this CHIPS Act was passed this past week, who was sitting right next to President Biden um, on the announcement of this? The CEOs of all the largest companies. Why? Because, of course, they're delivering a huge win to shareholders that, hey, they got billions of free dollars to do what they were already doing anyway. Yeah. And I think maybe the comparison for folks that maybe aren't on the economic or the high tech side, this is what we see with sports stadiums. And this is what we see with sports teams. Mm -hmm. And the argument they made is, well, we're going to have a we're going to have a resurgence in the heartland of tech. Well, that's happening already. Pittsburgh's having that. The Lehigh Valley, you know, outside of Philadelphia, they're getting that, you know, old steel towns and they're getting those high tech things. That's happening anyway. Is there really a need for the government to jump in and push this, something that's already happening organic? I know powers that be are going to want to steer it. Look, I'm a West Virginian. I'm old enough to remember Robert C. Byrd. I got to drive by 30 things with his name on it to go home. I get it. You know, power's trying to funnel the money. But economically and in the long run, is this healthy? Absolutely not. I mean, uh, economists like to talk about opportunity costs, but what else could that $52 billion or tax credits go to? I mean, um, education's been a huge topic in every state, especially over the last few years. $52 billion could give each state um, a, a little over a billion dollars. For some states, like my home state, that's 10% of New Jersey's budget. Even in a state as big as Texas, that's 5%. You could increase Homeland Security by 15%, which we know is kind of busting at the seams, or fit, fix roads. Um, in states and actually just directly give money to states, not for, you know, interstate highway and that sort of commerce, but actual state roads. This money could have been used for so many more practical uh, things that that this is really just a push for uh, large companies to get a handout. And I believe Bernie Sanders um, said this. Uh, he called it crony capitalism. And you know, it's not often that I always agree with Bernie Sanders, but he's absolutely right here. Is large companies getting a handout that they did not need, uh, but that Congress was willing to to lend out? Yeah, talking to Danielle Zanzalari, we're going to continue to talk about this. We're going to dig into this just a little bit more, talk about the economy in general. Also, uh, when Hertel returns right after this short break, Danielle Zanzalari joining us right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Danielle Zanzalari joining us. Uh, she's from Seton Hall. She does economics. She does all kinds of smart things. She wrote this piece about the CHIP Act. Listen, we do what we always do. We link to it in the show notes. Read the whole thing for yourself, including the links that she put in there. Make sure you make up your own mind on this topic. Let, let's talk about one thing we were just discussing in a little bit more detail. The Intel CEO, when they pass this bill, first thing this guy says 
is, oh, now we can spend money on building this factory in Ohio. We just talked about it. We are, uh, I'm going to read him the quote here. Um, we are thrilled to see the funding for the CHIPS Act. Intel is committed to restoring end-to-end -end leadership, innovation, and manufacturing here in the U.S. We are doing our part, and the federal government has now done their part. What in the world is end-to-end -end leadership, innovation, manufacturing? Is he is he just blatantly saying we would like to have a monopoly on this section? sector of industry because that i found that quote just absolutely mind-boggling it's like dude you're saying the quiet part out loud here i also could call it like word vomit right they're just using these buzzwords to kind of appeal to the media and people that don't you know don't quite understand uh most economists were not happy with this particular act but of course you see media cheering like yes right we know we can't get you know adequate chips in our cars cars have downgraded the um, amount of equipment and then you know all these cars are now high tech but over the last two years due to the chip shortage uh, some of these high-end tech features are not there and so consumers are seeing this oh as a wind we can get these sorts of things back but um, they're also taxpayers too and from a taxpayer standpoint this is a complete waste of money actually talk about the money because it's not fair to bash it unless we actually break it down uh, this particular piece of legislation of that billions that are going to Ohio specifically, 39 billion is for the manufacturing incentives. Okay, you know, infrastructure, get that. Two billion for legacy chips used in automobiles and defense system. You already talked about that. We'll get to that in just a second. 13 billion in research and development and workforce development. That's a great government word for a slush fund. And 500 million to provide for international information, communications, technology, security, and semiconductor supply chain activities. Uh, I'm a supply chain and transportation guy by trade. That's also going to be a slush fund. Am I wrong here? No, <laughs> that last one had more words than what's probably going to be done in that whole $500 million. <laughs> probably. Now, I get it when, you know, I know we have to do missions like we talked about before. You know, you got to deal with Taiwan. You got to deal with China. That means, you know, local officials go over there and glad. I get all that. But this is what always happens with these kind of pieces of legislation is, yes, there's stuff that goes in there. And then you get the bloat and you got to work through the bloat. The problem here is when the bloats are directed not at just, you know, states or communities or municipalities, that's one thing. That's bad enough. This is directed at what you just said, one of the largest companies in the world. Shouldn't that bother people just on a basic level? Well, yeah, absolutely. And the thing about this is, is, you know, anybody can go look up how the size of Intel. I think it took me two minutes to prepare this piece to know the size. And I know that Intel is a very, very big company, but I don't know their net profit off the top of my head. $20 billion per year of net profit, as mentioned, is as big as many small countries in the world. They are not small. They do not need money. And like, as your quotes, as the CEO that you just quoted from Intel said, hey, we're going to restore leadership and be kind of ahead again. I have no idea what that means. They are leading. They are the biggest chip manufacturer in the world. They are bigger than China's biggest manufacturer. They are number one. So they don't need to restore or get there. They are already there. And they already were moving uh, manufacturing back to the U.S. So this is just a complete power grab. Now, to be fair here, let's let's go back for a second because we understand China. Again, they're not a fair player. They do not deal fairly with us. Talk about it for just a second because underneath a lot of the economic stuff the last few years, it's kind of gotten lost. It poked up in the headlines once or twice. The chip shortage is a real thing, especially in the automotive industry. We saw it also things like home appliances like washer and dryers that now need chips, things like that. 
this was a real problem the last two years. And it was one of those things that COVID kind of really ripped a scab off of something that was already a little bit of a wound, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that focuses not just on the manufacturing part that was shut down. Um, and that was shut down right in China um, and other parts of the world. But it was also about the ac getting actual silicone out of the ground. And that we cannot change with this bill. As mentioned, silicone is not is not mainly found in the United States. It's found um, in East Asia. And so we have to work with those partners regardless of where we manufacture. And that, that fact's not going to change. You talked about uh, Senator Sanders, which everybody has an opinion on Bernie at this point. <laughs> Is there bipartisanship anywhere in this other than the fact that they shoved it through? Is it just all, well, this is a great way to funnel money. I, I get the feeling sometimes, especially on the Senate side of things, where sometimes they just let things go because they know, well, well, my constituency might be up next, right? So, yeah, this one went to Ohio, but the next one may go to my constituency. Is there an element to that when you're an economist and you start looking at this legislation of even the merits of just one-on-one, -on -one, they're just kind of slow to want to stop something that they may be the next person up at the trough at? Or is that too harsh? I mean, that might be true, but this act was very bipartisan, 64-34 in the Senate, 243 to 187. So you even had 24 Republicans vote for this in the House. It's not just um, a majority bill that was passed through. Having 64 senators vote for anything nowadays is is quite high. You're almost getting veto-proof power there. Um, and I mean, that's 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 pretty high. So I don't know if this is just uh, this is going to annoy uh, constituents enough to to not vote for them. But I think that um, many of these politicians are, are probably in cahoots with some of these uh, these chip companies and, and have some vested interest in them. Yeah. OK. Grown folk talk time. Besides the crony <laughs> capitalism part of this, how much of this is just good old fashioned uh, be scared of China? Again, bad actor, horrible human rights abuses. They are an adversary at best, an enemy or worse on the global stage at the same time. Are they getting waved around a lot to get some policy passed here? Is that a big factor here? No, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. I think that's why a lot of Republicans did end up voting for this bill, because they do want to be competitive with China. And as you mentioned, and I probably haven't said this at all yet, uh, China is not a fair actor when it comes to any economic policy. Um, and that, that's true. And the, the need to actually manufacture in the U.S. is, is real and there. The only difference is that I don't think the government needed to assist in companies moving manufacturing over here. The incentives already exist. Why only manufacture in China when they can shut down on a whim and you can't do anything about it? Why only manufacture in China when they can take over your business or do something uh, that is very anti-competitive at a moment's notice? It doesn't make sense, which is why these American companies were already shifting operations to Europe and the United States. They do not need any government incentives to do that. They were already doing that from a private perspective. Danielle Zanzalari joining us. Okay, what's going to be the next step in this? They passed this bill, but this is a manufacturing infrastructure. It's going to be years before this thing puts out a single microchip or semiconductor. What's going to be the next argument on this front of argument? Because the chip shortage is still real. It's not getting any better. China's not getting any quieter. Taiwan's not getting any less you know, messy. What's going to be the next step here? Because this isn't going to be the end of this, is it? No, what I'd like to see as an economist would be to cut some of the regulation here so there can be more competition with new firms entering the semiconductor space. So as mentioned, cars very much need chips. I'd like to see some vertical integration with 
you know, large car companies like Ford, Toyota, GM, actually going out and owning semiconductor firms and actually investing in those firms because they need them for their final product. Uh, but existing rules on vertical integration between uh, companies exist, and it would be nice if those could be lessened. They don't cost anything from a government perspective, from a taxpayer dollar perspective, but they can absolutely lead to more competition in the industry, driving down prices and increasing quantity. What's the economic impact of this sort of thing? Because chips are going to get more and more important. It's not like they're going to, you know, we're not going to de-technologically involve anytime soon, although some people will probably want us to. What's the economic impact of not having coherent and consistent policy when it comes to something like semiconductors and chips? Well, usually once you get a handout once, you come back looking for more, right? So uh, I think that the government's um, willingness to fund this industry, this is not going to be the first time semiconductor firms and the lobbying organization ask for this. So uh, with an ever-increasing importance for chips for final goods, you're going to see companies going, I need more, I need more, I need more. I fully expect that. All right. Anytime we have an economist on, we got to ask him the question of the day. Where you at on inflation and recession? Um, I am an economist that has always uh, taught two quarters of negative GDP growth. So I would say we are officially in a recession. Um, I do know that the definition is um, a little blurry that the MBER can call it. And I have very much respect for the MBER. But the problem with the definition, if you don't go with two quarters of negative GDP growth, is if they call recession in three months, four months, it's too late. Uh, you're calling it so beyond when the recession was that you couldn't have done anything to help it. Um, so I do think we're in a recession, um, at least from the standard definition. And I might uh, buck the trend of some of my fellow economists that like to go with this, but I do think we're in a recession. Uh, I do I think this is the worst recession of my lifetime. Absolutely not. Do I think this is the worst inflation in my lifetime? Uh, yes. I uh, mean, that, that tends to, to my age, but uh, it is quite high. I think a 0% month over month growth is good. I don't know if we peaked. A lot of economists say we're peaking. Um, I'd like to see inflation come down uh, as everybody would, but I think we're still going to be well over 5% for at least a year. Daniel, year over yeah. year, year over year. Yeah, gotcha. Dan, you're not going to do the 0% this month because we didn't last month. We won't get into that funness. Uh, Danielle Zanzalari. All right. I've got to ask you a question because we always talk about turning down the noise because, you know, we live in a buzzword world. You were at the Fed. So you tell me everybody online loves to bash the Fed. You know, the Fed's the great evil. Abolish the Fed, you know, so salt. So it never grows back. What's the biggest misperception you see, both as an economist and somebody that was actually there when people talk about the Fed, especially now when we're talking, you know, inflation control and things like this, which is in, you know, that's their purview. That's what they were designed to help control. They're going to be in the news a lot. What's one of the misperceptions you think people should probably get before they start smashing send on that tweet or Facebook post about the Fed? There's a lot of really, really smart economists, and there's a lot more banking professionals and non-economists running the Fed than you would think. And economists are there to advise and do research and support. But a lot of the key decision makers are not economists, and they don't have to listen to all of the advice of economists. And so I would say um, I'm pro more economists at the Fed and less other administrators. I think the Fed... Not that they don't deserve some criticism. I think they're like a lot of other things, like education, like the military, um, like the rest of the government, for that matter. There's what they do, and then there's the bureaucracy. 
And Absolutely. I think when you're, yeah, I think when you're discussing the Fed, it's just like the school system, it's just like the military, like everything else. Like, which one are we talking? Are we talking about the pointy end of the stick that you know defends us or teaches kids in the classroom? Or are we talking about the bureaucracy that's you know chewing it up and screwing everything up? Is that a fair way to address the Fed as well? Because really, yeah, it's it has a function, but it's also a giant bureaucracy like everything else, and bureaucracy almost no, almost never improves anything, right? I mean, absolutely. It's it's the bloat in the bureaucracy of the Fed. It keeps growing in size, never usually reduces. Um, like I said, there's really smart people working there. I think, you know, getting a job at the Fed, it's, it's quite hard to do, but it's not necessarily hard to retain your job at the Fed or other government institutions, which, you know, is, is common knowledge. Um, I loved working there and the colleagues, like I said, they're really, really smart and I have great relationships with um, all of them, but, uh, and it is quite good. But as an economist, um, I definitely like uh, having a little bit less bureaucracy, not just, you know, in my workplace, but um, also just in government in general as a taxpayer. Danielle Zanzalari, uh, great stuff today. Loved having you. Until we get you back on Herd Tell again, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you got going on. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at DZanzalari. So it's Z-A-N-Z-A-L-A-R-I on Twitter. Happy to have a conversation with you there. Send me a DM. Um, love to keep talking to you. Yeah, she has her piece up at Center Square that we've been working off of. Passage of the Chip Act is not economically smart. We have linked to it in the show notes. Make sure you read that entire piece in its entirety. Follow her, and we'll definitely have you back. Great stuff today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you, Andrew. Have a Thank nice you. one. Yes, ma'am. Uh, welcome back to her tell. All right, here's a face we haven't seen in a while. Anxious to hear from her. Sarah Montalbano returns to the show. We actually had her on way back in the old radio show days before the current itineration. Thrilled to talk to her again. She is the Northwest Regional Leader for Young Voices. Uh, she's done her schooling over at Montana State. She's written all over the place, Wall Street Journal, Spectator, a bunch of other places. Sarah, great to have you back. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm well. Now, her uh, bailiwick here is Alaska. Um, she does all kinds of research for Alaska Policy Forum. Y'all got a mess up there. Let's talk. Let's start big picture with this thing, though, because people, here's my thing. Lots of things sound good in theory. Ranked choice voting sounds great on paper. It's worked well in some places. It hasn't worked as well in other places. What's going on in Alaska? Because is the theory matching up with the practical when it comes to ranked choice voting? Definitely not. So we are in the midterm election um, mess. Uh, we got our ranked choice voting in a 2020 ballot initiative um, that passed by about 1%, which is, you know, 3,000 votes and change. Um, and so that implemented a unique in the nation top four primary system. So it's nonpartisan. It's what people like to call a jungle primary. Um, anybody from any party can come in. The top four advance to the um, to the general election. Uh, we were first expecting uh, our first test of ranked choice voting to be this November, uh, but due to Representative Don Young's death, uh, we've held a special election. Um, the 
I believe the uh, rank choice portion uh, was completed on August 16th, but we're not going to find out the results until August 31st. So a full two weeks after the rank choice voting, the primary was a disaster. There were 48 candidates on that ballot. It was enormous. Um, and the top four in that are Sarah Palin, uh, Nick Begich, uh, Al Gross, who dropped out, uh, claiming it was too difficult to run as a nonpartisan candidate, and Mary Peltola, the Democrat candidate. Um, so there in this uh, August 16th ranked choice voting election, there were only three candidates instead of four, which threw an extra wrench in this already confusing process. And just for those of you that don't have your flowchart fully filled out just yet, they're actually running two elections for the exact same office at the exact same time because one is the to fill in for the rest of Don Young's term. And then there's the actual primary primary for the next term. And we're doing it at the same time with the exact same group of people. Anybody else confused yet? Yes. Yes. And what's more confusing is that on August 16th, the ranked choice special election and the primary election, which is choose one, both on the same ballot. You had to flip it over to look for the ranked choice portion um so that in all to fill a, a seat for a few months uh, before the permanent um or well the general election is concluded in november so it's it's been a real mess and it's been very difficult to understand uh, why we're going to so much trouble now one thing that's we have found out while we're waiting on these results that are supposed to come out next week as the voting totals just to really make this even messier we now have the data they're creeping up on record levels of voting here. Now, we know voting has been up the last two cycles. We know the voting in the special elections have been up. Uh, we know the 2020 election blew all the records out of the water. We expect 2022 and 2024 to do the same. Not only are you putting in a new system, not only is it confusing because of the way you're having to fill the seat, because, you know, Don, for those that don't know, Don, you know, he was in, this is an institution he had been there for forever since I think Alaska was almost state. 50 years. Yeah, yeah. pretty much since Alaska. He's like the second guy to ever hold that office or something. I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but he'd been there for forever. Well respected. Everybody loved him. He was in that office till he died. That's happened. He's died. Now they're trying to fill it. Where do we even start with this? Because you got the ballots. You've got this now on top of all the mess of it. You've got record voting turnout on a system that even the people doing the system don't seem to know what to do with. This looked like a recipe for disaster. You're there. You're on the ground. Is it as big a disaster as it looks like it is? It seems like it's confused a lot of people. And I think ranked choice voting really advantages the people with the time, energy and interest to rank a bunch of candidates. Um, and then I think it also has a lot of problems for people like my father who, you know, they would rather just pick one candidate and the rest are unacceptable. They don't have preferences between the rest of them. Um, so that's, I think, something of, of a philosophic point um, is, is that we just can't treat this like, you know, I'd prefer vanilla ice cream to chocolate ice cream to strawberry ice cream. It's not that kind of ranking um, necessarily. So I, th I think it's confused a lot of people. There are so many questions about the system that uh, the Division of Elections has en um, endeavored on a bunch of education efforts that haven't been entirely successful. Um, yeah, so it's it's been really difficult. I don't know how to explain the voter turnout, except that it's on the same ballot as the primary election for November. So it was easy to see a large group of people who didn't vote in the special primary 
uh, who are voting in the special general, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Let's talk about the practical, though, because uh, sure. somewhere our friend Guinea Coulter, we're going to try to get her on our election expert. She runs polls. Her thing has always been you've got to have a ballot that's understandable. I'm old enough to remember hanging chads in the 2000 election. My first election was 98. That was my first presidential election. Hanging chads and is it fully punched out and then all that. This is not a new problem to have impractical ballots. But when you have, like you said, you had to flip the ballot over for the other really, really important part of this thing. You have 40 some people on one ballot. So people are just basically going to go look for the name they want, hit it and move on, even though they're supposed to fill it out further. Mm -hmm. I understand the idea of ranked choice voting. I think it's good. I think the implement implementation here, like you said, the education hadn't caught up yet. The people, is it fair to say the folks just weren't quite ready for it, even if they liked the idea? It doesn't seem like this was well enacted and folks weren't ready for it. I think so. And I think the fact that the special election came earlier than we were expected, it cut, you know, three months off of education time uh, for the division of elections. So that's, I think, certainly a factor. Um, yeah. And I mean, the primary ballots are huge because you get anybody who wants to be on the field uh, throwing their name in and getting, you know, a handful of votes. Um, so asking people to think carefully about each of these candidates is going to be kind of a pipe dream. Um, and, and you know, people will gravitate towards the people either they've always voted for or that they know are staunch you know, supporters of their party. Uh, I don't think it necessarily adds to more choice. It just adds to more paperwork. Is it fair to say that part of the problem, whether it's ranked choice voting or traditional voting or mail-in ballots or, you know, they're they're going to continue to try to push online voting in some shape or fashion going forward. That's just inevitable. No matter what kind of voting you're talking about, isn't it like a lot of policies that if you don't take into account human nature and you don't take into account, you know, the lowest denominator of who's paying attention and who's doing the voting, no matter how great the system is, it's not going to work if you don't plan it that way and you don't have practical ways for folks to execute it. And I think you're seeing that in Alaska here where you have, you know, geographically a huge state, population-wise, a very concentrated population. This, this is a place where ranked choice voting probably should work. What should we take away from the fact that it's so far a disaster? That's interesting. I think what we're seeing in Alaska is the fact that a slim majority of, of voters wanted this system. And I think the rest are feeling very demoralized. I think one of the other lessons of ranked choice voting, this special election has been the least focused on policy that I can remember. It has been driven almost entirely by name recognition. We've got the big player, Sarah Palin. Of course, everybody knows her. Uh, Nick Begich, who uh, is well known because of the rest of the baggage family who have all been Democrats. So he's a little hurt by being a Republican in that family. Um, and then Al Gross, who was the third place contender, he was well known from uh, his challenge to Dan Sullivan in 2020. 
uh, we're not seeing any real debate over policy issues and we're not seeing the parties internally hash out what their platforms are going to be. Um, you know, if, if we were in a choose one system, we would have Sarah Palin and Nick Begich duking it out over uh, policy, but that hasn't happened due to ranked choice voting. And uh, <laughs> you brought it up, so let's just go ahead and talk about the race. Um, Peltola, Mary Peltola is the beneficiary of the two of them not matching up. But again, it's ranked choice voting. So that whoever you would assume that whoever has Palin one would have Nick two and vice versa. But Palin's a different character. She was the governor of Alaska. For people that don't remember, she quit and resigned from the governor of Alaska to go and do other things before her term was up. Some time has passed here. It's a different environment now. She's a different kind of candidate than she was when she was John McCain's running mate and the governor of Alaska. Definitely. What I know the national narrative. I know what I think from having been there the first rodeo with Sarah Palin. Yes. What do Alaskans actually think about her? Especially Republicans, but the why because you know it's still a, a Republican state in a lot of ways. What do they say about her? What are they thinking about her? Yeah, I had an interesting conversation um, about this. And before I saw the primary results, I would have said that most Alaskans still have a chip on her, their shoulder about Sarah Palin because she quit the governorship. Um, whether that was justified or not, we don't want to have somebody that's going to quit. Um, and that would have been my answer. She got first place in the primary election. Um, and that, that was really interesting to me. I think Alaskans generally are concerned, though, that she's going to be another MAGA all the way candidate who's not going to do any of the really effective things that Don Young did for the state. Don Young was willing to reach across the aisle and actually bring home pork projects for Alaska. Um, and so whether that's good or bad, that's something Alaskans are often looking for, uh, for someone who's going to really watch out for our energy interests um, forestry, fishing, those kind of things. And I feel like a lot of Alaskans know that she's going to use her seat as a publicity platform. That's what I think. <laughs> and for those that don't know, Alaskans have some things that we don't have in the lower 48. Don Young was there because he was there long enough. Y'all get your check once a year. Uh, yes. You get stuff, <laughs> you get stuff like that. Um, Alaska has a lot of policy. We've had you on before about policy, especially land use policies. You know, there's always going to be debate over the North Slope, the the oil and gas industry up there. Of course, tourism is a big factor for Alaska. Um, Y'all have a corner on reality shows. What do you think the lower 48 doesn't get about Alaskans politics, either the cultural side of politics? Because like you said, this has been more of a cultural side election than a policy election. Or on the policy side, either. What is it that the lower 48, because everybody always says it's just different there. It's just different there. Same thing when I talk about West Virginia. Look, it's different. I can't explain to you. It's just different. Explain it to us. It's just different. But what's different this time with the populism, I should say, the cultural aspect of this election? Why does this feel so different on top of the ranked choice voting stuff? That's an interesting question. I think a lot of it is... Alaska's local elections are mostly dominated or well local politics in general are dominated by the issue of the permanent fund dividend and what Alaska should do with the nest egg that we've got. 
um, and how much should be paid each year. It takes a ridiculous amount of time in every legislative session uh, that doesn't get put toward other policy things. Um, so the local level, I think, is not as effective as it could be. Um, and then this race, as we start to fill this, we are looking at a huge gap where Don Young left. Um, as, as you said, he was here for almost the lifetime of the state. Um, he was Uncle Don, you know, in a lot of ways. So it's, we are looking for someone who can fill that enormous um, gap that he's left. Someone who can kind of continue on in his spirit of trying to be cooperative when possible, uh, because Alaska often gets targeted by environmental groups and environmental policy because um, we are this epicenter of so many projects. Uh, Anwar, uh, the North Slope, uh, the Pebble Mine, there's, there's so many things that affect only Alaskans very intimately that everybody in the nation has an opinion about. Plus, you can see Russia from there, but we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, Sarah Montebano joining us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, it wasn't just the House race, and it's not just Sarah Palin. Big names, big important races up in Alaska. We'll continue to talk about that. Our good friend Sarah Montebano, our Alaska expert on Hertel, continuing right after the break. Uh, welcome back to her tale. Having a good time talking to our friend Sarah Monteblano, catching up with her. Been a while since we've had her on. We'll try to be, make it not so long next time. Okay, it's not just the Sarah Palin double election for the same seat twice at one time, which I don't think that's ever happened before in American history. We'll have to look into that. The Senate rate, Lisa Murkowski, she is an enigma inside of a riddle stuffed in a Manushka doll that sits up on multiple shelves that are hidden behind a bookcase that you pull the book to open up. Nobody can quite figure her out in Alaska, except she's like the dude. She just abides. Like she's just kind of there. She's always going to be there. I'm looking at the polling data from the top two. Looks like she's going to be there again. What's the deal with her? Cause she's, she's, she's kind of heterodox. She's not fully conservative. She's conservative on most of the important things, but she does break. She's one of those that's every time we have a Supreme court justice or something bipartisan, her name's always in that mix. Trump doesn't like her, but she seems to be kind of impenetrable to his criticism. You're an Alaskan. We're not. You explain it to me. Uh, Lisa Murkowski. All right. That's a big topic. Um, and what I would have to say first is that Lisa Murkowski is going to be enormously advantaged by this ranked choice voting situation. Uh, she, in the primary, because um, we get those results back because they're choose one. Um, so we have that from August 16th, and she polled almost 45%. Um, her nearest challenger is Kelly Chewbacca. I really hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, and she got 39%. She's the challenger that Trump endorsed. Um, and, and she's, you know, got a really strong following among Republicans. Um, but every Democrat who's going to be voting in the ranked choice election is going to recognize that Murkowski is a really important swing vote for them. Um, and that, you know, if a Democrat doesn't have a chance of winning this entirely through their first choice votes, uh, that they might as well give their second choice to Murkowski. So I think it's pretty inevitable. Murkowski is going to stay a fixture in Alaska, Alaska politics. 
Now, there was a lot of rumors that if this uh, ranked choice voting hadn't gone through, she may have switched independent to avoid that primary. That that was chatter from her own folks, not just that's not just speculation. You really think this bailed her not only bailed her out, but kept her in the Republican Party perversely enough, uh, you know, like Ray Yane, that kind of ironic, ain't it? Yes. Yes. And and the one thing I would note is on these ballots, um, the party designation next to the name is what the person is registered to vote as. It's not, you know, an, an endorsement by the party. It's nothing like that. So Lisa Murkowski can say, look, I've, I'm a registered Republican. She could choose not to vote for any Republicans in any election, but as long as she's registered to vote Republican and R shows up next to her name. Um, so that's one part of the the system that I do feel advantages her. And then the strategy of it um, just makes sense uh, because, you know, first of all, if, if she has a lot of first choice votes, that's probably a reflection of people who really approve of her time in Congress. Uh, but there's going to be, first of all, um, Republicans who put uh, Kelly first and Murkowski second and say, well, I'd rather have a Republican than any of the Democrats on the ballot. And then conversely, we also have um, voters who put Democrats first and then put Murkowski in their second choice. Um, so Murkowski, I feel like really can't lose necessarily. And she doesn't need the endorsement of the Alaska Republican Party to do well. She can point to her record and say, look, you know, Democrats, you should have me because I'm a valuable swing vote. Um, Republicans, I'm still better than most of the Democrats. It's interesting you bring up the designation, uh, talking to Sarah Montabano. Yeah. The party the party is on the ballot, but it's the way you're saying it. It's just their affiliation because the party doesn't have anything to do with the ranked choice system, unlike a primary. In the governor's race, you have a little bit of an interesting thing where Mike Dunleavy's kind of running away and hiding with this thing. But second place slipped to Bill Walker, who is listed as a nonpartisan. And then Lescara, the Democrat, right? I mean, they're, they're within a couple hundred votes of each other, but nonpartisan slide up to number two. That's what the ranked choice folks that advocate say, ah, there you go. Look there. See what happened? Somebody not in the, the duality got in there. Do you take that as a positive sign? Is that an outlier? How did that land? Because it, it was noticeable. Yes, that's something that made me very skeptical when Al Gross said, well, it's just too hard to run as a nonpartisan candidate, um, because that really shouldn't be the case necessarily. Um, I think a lot of nonpartisan candidates end up caucusing with Democrats anyway, most of the time. Um, so that I don't know if that's an Alaska phenomena or just in general, um, but that's something I've noticed too. Bill Walker um, actually won governor uh, as an independent uh, a few years ago. I forget exactly when, but a lot of people were unhappy with him because I think he ran initially as a Republican or a Democrat, I forget, and then switched to independent so that he could be in the general election because he lost his primary. Um, so that's something this jungle primary eliminates. You don't have to go through the primary process with uh, your party. You can just put your name on the ballot as an independent or a nonpartisan candidate and still get a really strong performance. To be fair, though, Gross is just kind of a weird human being in general, right? Because this is what he the is, second or third yeah. time he's run for statewide office. He's just a different kind of cat. Not even a bad way. He's just different, isn't he? For folks that don't yeah. know, just explain him for a minute because he made a lot of he he made a nice hard run at it in 2020. He, he didn't embarrass himself electorally, but he is kind of a strange dude. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. I think he's an orthopedic surgeon. Um, I, I don't know too much about him, but I do. I I'm really baffled that he dropped out of this special election because, quite frankly, he handed it to Mary because he said, "Look, I'm dropping out. It's too hard to run as a nonpartisan. I give my full endorsement to the Democrat in this race." And now she's running away with it. She's got thirty, almost thirty nine percent, while Sarah Palin's coming in second with about thirty one percent. Uh, and we're not going to know for sure until August 31st, but I would bet she's going to be our temporary for a few months um, representative. Um, so that was really an interesting wrench in the system. And that will be the rare blue flipped uh, seat in this uh, midterm, probably. Uh, let's go back big picture to kind of round this back off. Obviously, Alaska is unique. Obviously, the ranked choice voting is something that's getting pushed in other places. Mm-hmm. Give us a pros and cons list because you've been through it. You've actually done it now. You're sitting here waiting. The People complain about a couple hours waiting on a call or the next day call. Y'all are waiting three weeks almost. Yes. Give me a couple good things and give me a couple bad things from somebody who's actually going through it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple bad things come to mind first. Um, firstly, it's so, so confusing. Um, I think a lot of people are advantaged by the fact that they have the time, energy, you know, interest, whatever, uh, to look through these massive primary lists and then to really consider their ranking. Um, Another disadvantage of ranked choice voting I see is the potentiality for mistakes, not just, you know, simple things that would happen uh, in any scenario where you're, you know, you forget to witness a ballot or you don't fill in your bubble practically. Um, there are so many ways where you can mess up a ranking and invalidate part of your vote or all of your vote. Um, And then one of the last things I will say, I could go on for a very long time about what I don't think is right with this system. Uh, But the last thing I will say is that people who vote the way they always have by picking their top preference and leaving no no other people, they are essentially forfeiting their right to be in an instant runoff, um, which is what ranked choice voting proponents say, well, we don't have to do runoff elections if we just have people rank their votes um, right up front. Um, but people who who only put a first choice preference, uh, if that candidate's eliminated, their ballot's exhausted. They don't have any say in the final choice, uh, which is particularly concerning for me. The one thing I do have to say has surprised me are the nonpartisan candidates who are really making it up there. Uh, Like you said, I am curious to see how it goes, uh, especially if we get some really unknown nonpartisan candidates, because I think the people we've seen so far have made their fame already in earlier races that were not totally successful um, or in in orderly politics like Bill Walker. Um, So we... We definitely see some nonpartisan candidates where we probably wouldn't have before. Uh, Sarah Montalbano talking a little bit Alaska ranked choice voting. We'll have you back. We'll talk about this when this gets wrapped up. Uh, we'll see if Sarah Palin makes a comeback or if that seat really does go blue. It kind of looks that way. Looks like Lisa McCaskey's going to hang around for a while. One thing you can never say about Alaska's politics, it's a lot like the rest of the state. You're never bored. There's always never. something going on and there's always going to be a storm in just a minute if you hang around for a second. Exactly. Uh, what a wonderful state. Uh, would love to get back up there. Uh, Sarah Montabano, let folks know where they can 
follow you, what you got going on. You're one of these regional leaders. That makes you real important. I think that ranks you over top of me, actually. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that happened. But anyway, let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on in the meantime till we get you back on Hertel again. Yeah, so you can find my work on the alaskapolicyforum.org website. I really encourage you to look for me there, or you can find me on Twitter or Facebook. Yep, her Twitter handle is right there on the side of the screen. If you're watching on YouTube, which I know you are because you're subscribed, right? Uh, Sarah Monteblano. Yeah, see? (laughs) That's why she's a regional director. Sarah Monteblano, you do great work, my friend. We'll talk real soon. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. You ever hear the old joke about folks with two first names? He's got two last names, but he's a good friend of the program. He's been here before. Happy to have him back. Cooper Conway is rejoining us. Going to talk a little education with him. How have you been, sir? I am doing fantastic. Enjoying my summer, and I hope that you are doing the same. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, well, if you got kids like me, summer's over next week because we got school and football starting. So, uh, in fact, they're doing band practice right now. So, some everybody's like, summer's not over. Like, if you got kids, summer's over. Sorry to break it to you. Uh, let's talk some, uh, education. We talked this topic with you before, but you take a different point. Um, part of the private school experience in America traditionally has always been through, uh, religious education, church schools. Let's start big picture though, before we delve into specifics here, this has a long tradition in America. People may not realize Harvard, Yale, those were all started as church schools. Um, churches, most in small town America throughout the early 17th, 18th, 19th century, usually the church and the school is the same building a lot of times because that's the only place you could have for such things. Um, there's a long tradition here. We understand it's changed. What has changed? What part of that tradition applies now? What part of it doesn't before we get into the specifics of what's going on now? Because we got to know where we've been to really talk about where we're going, right? Yeah, I would say that the school started off um, definitely more Protestant as more immigrants came into the country. That started to change um, to the point where now our uh, our public schools are now um, secular. However, um, they are not value neutral by any means. And so now you're seeing debates um, happening between parents all over the country in terms of what values we want to instill in our children. And for me, I think that this is um, something that we do. It's going to take a long time to work through, but that school choice is a way that we can ease the tensions on um, these curriculum dates, debates, these culture wars, if you will. Um, and I think that right now the church has an opportunity with recent um, SCOTUS rulings to step into this um, space and the, into the education spec- sector like they haven't been able to do in a long time and um, help out some families. Now, let's do some nomenclature real quick for folks, because you said the church. 
The problem with is even among, let's even take a small slice of, let's even take a small slice, just say conservative evangelical voters, because that's kind of what we're dealing with here, right? Even amongst that, you're talking dozens of denominations. You're talking about, you know, untold amount of different traditions when it comes to schooling, traditions, standards of dress, standards of worship. This is not a monolith, even though they kind of vote together as a group and they have shared values. Go through the nomenclature real quick, especially for the Protestants, because, you know, Catholic school is probably pretty much a Catholic school. You know, Jewish school is going to be pretty uniform, although you have ultra orthodox and things like this. Um, I'm sure our Muslim friends have the same problems, but you can't just say the church, can you? Because it gets even more complicated just doing that, doesn't it? Yeah, we could go into the different intricacies of the belief system of the um, of the I guess you could say Christian right. Um, that could be a whole nother podcast. We can make a movie or a book. We can write a book on it if you really want to. Uh, I'm just going to say the church generally can step up. Um, it doesn't matter. I'm fine with whatever those beliefs may be. Um, say it's a it's like you said a Jewish school or a Catholic school, uh, Protestant, Evangelical, um, whatever that may be. I think there's a newfound opportunity because of the different types of schooling um, that's being created because of the pandemic, where before we would have thought of private schools um, as just kind of like a public school, but with some kind of religious values. Um, But now we have the opportunity to use um, the churches can step into the sector and create micro schools or learning pods or help with hybrid homeschooling um, and using some of their um, some of the the help that they have in that community um, to help the children in that community in their church or even outside of their church as well. Now we saw some of this, you brought up the, the uh, pandemic. Uh, Nothing happens in a vacuum. It happens in a sequence. Education forever changed during the pandemic. I don't think people realize this yet because not just the parents, the students got taught something. They got taught their cogs in a wheel. Now we Mm -hmm. saw a lot of this people trying pods, people trying uh, micro schools, people trying different things. Uh, We know from the numbers, private schools, uh, religious and otherwise, the enrollments went up in a lot of areas. We've got a little bit of space now. Has those trends continued or do you think they've eased off? And do you think the issues raised during COVID are continuing or are they starting to abate a little bit? Yeah, those trends are really continuing. Uh, I'm not for sure the numbers on in terms of private um, religious schools particularly, but I can tell you right now that a lot of um, public schools, especially inner city public schools, are having their enrollment decline um, at a rapid pace. And I think this isn't necessarily, it's just because parents for the first time because of the pandemic have seen that there's other options that they can take advantage of. And people do really like their public schools. Gallup has been doing polling um, for the past two decades on how parents feel about their eldest child's education. And those numbers have never um, dipped below 67% in terms of their satisfaction, which is really high numbers. Um, and even Ed Choice had a recent poll where it said, if uh, the money and the travel wasn't an issue, what would be your first choice? And parents still um, chose public schools pretty overwhelmingly as their first choice at like 41%. Then private schools was around 30 um, to 40% as well. And it kind of just um, went down the line with the different types of education uh, models that are now available. However, parents do know that those other education options are available. And so they're going to continue to try and take advantage of those, especially if they feel like their child isn't being served um, to their highest uh, capabilities in the public school. Um, Cooper Conway joining us, talking a little education as he is wont to do when he makes appearances. Let's be real here. okay? part of what happened during the pandemic was and this is both a uh, slam and a uh, cautionary tale. 
let's just be honest. This is the first time a lot of parents paid attention to what their kids were doing in schools because they're online. So now all of a sudden they can see the teachers, they can see the curriculum. They're actually got it in their face and they've got to deal with it. That's to their shame if they weren't involved before that, but it is what it is. That's the first time that a lot of parents really saw what was going on in schools. That's an enormous factor in the things you just talked about, though, isn't it? That it's just the awareness changed, the information level changed, and that's what's driving a lot of this reaction, isn't it? It is a, it's a factor. It's so large. I don't even think I can um, understand it if I tried. And I, and I want to tell you, the first time that I really saw this happen was I was um, interning for a local think tank in Oregon at the beginning of 2020. And uh, Oregon's governor shut down the public schools and said that the public schools will transition to an online format. However, the public schools had a little bit of trouble transitioning while the online public charter schools already had the infrastructure in place. And so many parents immediately transferred over into these online public charter schools. However, there's this kind of this arbitrary cap where only 3% of the students um, per district can transfer into these schools, right? And so a lot of families um, hit the cap and they realized they couldn't get into these schools. And so they, um, sent letters to the state legislature trying to overturn this cap to allow their children to be able to go to school with some type of online infrastructure available instead of just kind of um, twiddling their thumbs at home, if you will. And it took only one letter from the teachers union to really just shut down this idea. The parents weren't able to transfer um, their students into public online charter schools um, that are free, open, and available to all. And uh, I know that online schooling isn't the um, the answer for most children, but it was still something, it was something compared to nothing that they were being offered at the moment. And so parents said, well, maybe we are just kind of a number. And uh, they they started saying that the public schools may not be on their side as they previously thought they were. Here's the argument that you're going to hear pushed against this. I know you've dealt with this because I've seen you do other media where you feel this, but we need to address it because it's a fair point to make. Yeah. The argument that comes from uh, the education folks that are very pro-public school. And by the way, I'm not anti-public school. I just want them to be better. And if you love something, you hold it accountable. I need We need accountability in public school. The argument is, whether it's a charter school, public or private, or a private church school, uh, the enrollments are dropping. Funding is tied to enrollment. So every time they drop an enrollment, public schools lose funding. So vis-a-vis, -vis, every time somebody goes to these charter schools, we're hurting the public schools. That's the argument. There is validity to the argument, but how do we address that if you're going to be for school choice? Yeah. Well, the, if you're for school choice, you should always ask the question. Um, school choice shouldn't be a problem for any public school at all if the public school is serving that child um, perfectly, right? And the child doesn't think that there's a better option out there. However, we have introduced competition into the market. And so if a parent and their um, a parent and guardian of the child think that thinks that there's a better option, they're going to take it. However, once these private school choice programs are put into place, in 25 of 28 studies, the public school students' test scores actually go up uh, because of the competition is what is theorized. Um, also, the students who are able to access these private school choice programs, their test scores go up. But we know that school uh, that test scores aren't necessarily um, the only thing that parents are looking for. Um, also, there's been uh, shown to be higher perceptions of safety from these parents. There's higher civic values once these school choice programs are implemented. Students go on to graduate high school and college at higher levels as well. 
Um, and so really it's kind of the rising tide that lifts all boats because competition is making everyone to be better because they do want to hold on to these dollars. Yeah. Cooper Conway joining us. We're going to dig into this a little bit more. He's got a piece out of American conservative. We're going to dig into that. Got some interesting numbers in here, especially when it comes to test scores, civic literature, civic literacy, which I could say if I had proper civic training, sorry, dad, uh, perceived safety and other issues. We're going to dig into this a little bit. I'm going to work on my pronunciation. He's going to bring the knowledge. Cooper Conway continuing on her tell right after this. Back to Herd Tell. Cooper Conway joining us, having a great conversation offline. We had to hit the record button, get back online because I enjoy talking to my friend. All right. There's some specifics into education we just have to deal with here. here. Here's a problem. We do this with the gun debate, abortion debate, pick any hot button issue we have. We want to talk about it in a vacuum like nothing else around it ever affects it. We talk about culture wars things this way like nothing else around affects it. If you have school-aged children and you're a family with school-aged children, that dominates your life. Like everything in your life revolves around your school-aged children. It just does if you're a halfway decent parent anyway. Here's the problem, and you touch on it. When you're dealing with things like test scores, you're dealing with things like educational attainment, you're dealing with things like school safety, amount of effects and social things that go into them that doesn't actually show up on a test score or a funding spreadsheet. How do we have a better big picture view of these things? Because I think part of the problem with school choice is we start pitting people against each other that really shouldn't be against each other because they can't get the bigger picture that they're not adversaries at all. Is that a fair way to frame this? Because I think we put these down in the silo holes and then we just want to shoot intercontinental ballistic missiles at each other like the Russians and the U.S. back in the Cold War. And it's mutually assured destruction and there's nothing in the middle. There's a lot of middle here, isn't there? Yeah, there is a lot of middle. Um, the thing about school choice is that it's wildly popular. Um, the polling on it recently has been um, around 70%, and that crosses partisan, um, racial, and ethnic lines. And But the thing is, they're also, you know, teachers are seen, teachers unions, I should say, are seen as kind of this adversarial force um, against the, the school choice movement. But to, the teachers themselves, we are on the side of. Um, I come from uh, my dad was a private school teacher and a public school teacher. My grandparents were public school teachers. And so really, we're trying to create this broad coalition um, that is able to advance an educational reform that should, um, that's not a panacea, it's not a, silver, uh, it's not a silver bullet, but it should have substantial increases for the individual child. And that's what we're going for, because not every school is going to be perfect for a kid. And the one-size-fits-all um, approach that we've been taking with the public school system um, just hasn't been working out as well as we thought it would. We have increased funding by 150% since 1960 um, per pupil um, adjusted for inflation, but our test scores have pretty much um, flatlined. And so it's time to see, maybe we can do something different here um, while still supporting families, students, and the teachers as well as one whole community. Because that's kind of the thing with school choice is that I see it as a, as a pro-family policy because you're putting the parents in charge of an education that is their child. And parents know their child best, as you mentioned. And also they know like what teachers are gonna um, break through and kind of ignite that spark um, for the learning that they hope to see um, for their child to find their passion.
since you just brought it up, let's just go there though. Part of the problem here is, and we just, there was headlines this morning. I was just reading another piece. We are having massive teacher shortages in this country, Matt, like, like crisis level teacher shortages. This isn't just affecting kids. We are pumping more money than ever in the schools. It's not just the kids that aren't getting a good, proper education out of it. The teachers are getting burnt out and don't want anything to do with it. And it's getting harder and harder to get quality people into the in-classroom positions. Why is that? Because that's part of the disconnect, too. I know we want to focus on the kids, but, you know, I don't want public schools to be bad. I don't want them to fail. I want them to succeed. I do want school choice, but I still want the best public schools we can possibly have. And we need to have both. Yes, if we don't have good quality teachers, none of this is going to work, right? Yeah, exactly. And the reason that we're not going to be able to have access to um, high quality teachers or this a lot of teachers leaving the profession right now, um, there's various reasons. One of those reasons that I can think of off the top of my head is that we have increased this funding. Um, I know Ed Choice um, did a, a study called Back to the Staffing Surge by Marty Lucan, I believe. And they showed that our increase in spending from 1992 to 2016 was about 27%, but teacher salaries actually got cut 2%. And so the money that we're putting into the system is never actually reaching the teacher or the student. Instead, it's going into other administrative roles um, that don't directly affect the student's learning. And teachers, while I think they they deserve to be valued, um, I think ed choice or school choice, um, for that matter, is actually a better way to value um, their time and their expertise. Uh, think of Arizona, for example. They just created this universally um, expanded education savings account. Um, for those who don't know, an ESA is kind of like a voucher program, but it allows parents to use it on not only private school tuition, but also other online uh, curriculum resources, special needs therapies, um, basically any private education expense under the sun. However, this also takes out the middleman. So say a teacher in your local neighborhood um, wants to teach 10 or so kids, they're getting $70,000 and they can spend the money on some of the, the books and resources and, and still get paid a really um, great wage with probably a smaller class size than what they're having to um, deal with in the local public school. You know, different states have different scholarship programs. If you stay in state, you can go to a state school. There's programs like this, but it seems like we want to put more barriers to these types of programs than we want to lower barriers and get more kids in them. It almost feels like the system is working against itself, even with its stated goal. I think that's where people's frustration comes through. I think that's where some of the teachers' frustration comes through. And I know it's from, to be fair to them, although we bash them a lot, I know it's a frustration that legislators and Congress people have in trying to work on the system. Yes, exactly. And the thing is that the, some, one of the saddest parts is that who this affects most is going to be um, lower income families and, and their children because higher income families and their children are able to make a school a school choice, if you will, just by buying a house because they're going to be assigned to um, the nicest public school if they have a, a house that is um, in a wealthier neighborhood, while families who can't afford it are going to be assigned to this failing public school that's not only failed them, but it's probably failed their parents and their grandparents um, for decades now. And so the families that are able to have access to the nicest public school are also going to be able to have access to um, private schools because lower income families can't pay twice for their public school education and their private school. It's just too tough. It's a tough burden on any family for that matter to pay um, twice for both a public school and a private school tuition. So why don't we, oh, we take down this barrier and open up this opportunity and level the playing field um, for these lower income families? And I think this is something that just makes sense um, for us to do. 
And I don't know why we don't continue to do that as West Virginia and Arizona have done. Yeah. And if you doubt what he's saying, just go on Zillow or any other real estate website. Look at the first item that's right under the price. It's always the school district without mm-hmm. exception. It's just the selling points, how it works. Cooper Conway bringing, let's, let's round this off by going back to where we started religious schools. I, we, we did a piece on this show a while back where they argued that things like freedom of the press and religion actually have to go together because those are the institutional bulwarks of a stable country, the freedom to worship how you want to and a press that can hold people accountable. Is the press, our news media, I don't know that they're doing a great job of covering educational issues right now. And then you throw the religious aspect on top of it, which is to to be fair to them, always hard to cover in a pluralistic society. Is the debate and the discourse and the news media coverage of religious schools just not where it needs to be to have a fair hearing for people? I'm not talking about the persecution people talk about online just because somebody doesn't like their view. But I do think we need to change how this conversation is being had. Do we do that with terminology? Do we do that with the tenor of the conversation? How do you think we improve how this issue is covered going forward? Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, that's a question that could be had really at large is trying to understand someone else's beliefs. Um, personally, I'm not Catholic, I'm not Jewish, um, but I, it would take a while for me to go in before, you know, I criticize their schooling methods because I don't really understand um, their viewpoints or, or religious beliefs. And I think that that's something that journalists particularly should try and do um, before they write, you know, a hit piece or something like that on these schools because they have different views and practices towards um, marriage, for example, if you will. So I think that's something that's a good place to start. And um, I think that can be had both from people that are, are consider themselves secular, but also um, religious as well. And then if we're able to at least kind of extend this olive branch and, and try and make peace with another person's beliefs and say, you know, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I'm going to let you practice how you want. Um, that's going to go a long way. Yeah, the eternal struggle in America is where do my rights start and your rights stop? And that's just this is a great extension on that age old argument, something we need to be very cautious of and we also need to be respectful of and it's something we just got to work out as a society cooper conway great stuff as always buddy let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back again yep you can follow me on twitter at cooper conway one and then you can see um all my writing and uh, media pieces on the young voices website with my headshot um over over the top of it so um thank you so much for having me i appreciate it as always He's the one with the glasses and the hair. You'll know what I'm talking about if you're not watching us on the YouTube. You're a good friend. I always enjoy having you on. Let's do it again. I'll make it so long next time, buddy. Talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. 
Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.